My exhaustion had been such that I had leaned over into the thorn bushes and slept, despite a multitude of jabbing prickles. I extricated myself with much difficulty, leaving bits of cloth, hair, and skin behind. I emerged from my hiding place as cautiously as any hunted animal, not only questing as far as my sense would reach, but also snuffing the air and peering all about me. I knew that my questing would not reveal to me any forged ones, but hoped that if any were nearby, the forest animals would have seen them and reacted. But all was quiet. I cautiously emerged onto the road, but it was wide and empty. I looked once at the sky, and then set out for forge. I stayed close to the edge of the road where the shadows of the trees were thickest. I tried to move both swiftly and silently, and did neither as well as I wanted to. I had stopped thinking of anything except vigilance and my need to get back to Buck Keep. Smithy's life was the barest tendril in my mind. I think the only emotion still active in me was the fear that kept me looking over my shoulder and scanning the woods to either side as I walked. It was full dark when I arrived on the hillside overlooking Forge. For some time I stood looking down on it, seeking for any signs of life. Then I forced myself to walk on. The wind had come up and fitfully granted me moonlight. It was a treacherous boon, as much deceiver as revealer. It made shadows move at the corners of abandoned houses, and cast sudden reflections that glinted like knives from puddles in the street. But no one walked in forge. The harbour was empty of vessels, no smoke rose from any chimneys. The normal inhabitants had abandoned it not long after that fateful raid, and eventually the forged ones had as well, once there were no more sources of food or comfort there. The town had never really rebuilt itself after the raid, and a long season of winter storms and tides had nearly completed what the red ships had begun. Only the harbour looked almost normal, save for the empty slips. The sea walls still curved out into the bay like protective hands cupping the docks. But there was nothing left to protect. I threaded my way through the desolation that was forge. My skin prickled as I crept past sagging doors on splintered frames in half-burned buildings. It was a relief to get away from the mouldy smell of the empty cottages and to stand on the wharves overlooking the water. The road went right down to the docks and curved along the cove. A shoulder of roughly worked stone had once protected the road from the greedy sea, but a winter of tides and storms without the intervention of man was breaking it down. Stones were working loose, and the sea's driftwood battering rams, abandoned now by the tide, cluttered the beach below. Once, carts of iron ingots had been hauled down this road to waiting vessels. I walked along the sea wall and saw that what had appeared so permanent from the hill above would withstand perhaps one or two more winter seasons without maintenance before the sea reclaimed it. Overhead, stars shone intermittently through scudding clouds. The evasive moon cloaked and revealed herself as well, occasionally granting me glimpses of the harbour. The shushing of the waves was like the breathing of a drugged giant. 
It was a night from a dream, and when I looked out over the water, the ghost of a red ship cut across the moorpath as it put into Forge Harbour. Her hull was long and sleek, her masts bare of canvas as she came slipping into the harbour. The red of her hull and prow was shiny as fresh spilled blood, as if she cut through runnels of blood instead of salt water. In the dead town behind me, no one raised a shout of warning. I stood like a fool limbed on the seawall, shivering at the apparition, until the creak of oars and the silver dripping of water off an oar's edge made the red ship reel. I flung myself flat to the causeway, then slithered off the smooth road surface into the boulders and driftwood cluttered along the seawall. I could not breathe for terror. All my blood was in my head, pounding, and no air was in my lungs. I had to set my head down between my arms and close my eyes to regain control of myself. By then, the small sounds even a stealthy vessel must make came faint but distant across the water to me. A man cleared his throat. An oar rattled in its lock. Something heavy thudded to the deck. I waited for a shout or command to betray that I had been seen, but there was nothing. I lifted my head cautiously, peering through the whitened roots of a driftwood log. All was still, save the ship coming closer and closer as the rowers brought her into harbour. Her oars rose and fell in near-silent unison. Soon I could hear them talking in a language like ours, but so harshly spoken I could barely get the meaning of the words. A man sprang over the side with a line and floundered ashore. He made the ship fast no more than two ships' length away from where I lay hidden among the boulders and logs. Two others sprang out, knives in hands, and scrambled up the seawall. They ran along the road in opposite directions to take up positions as sentries. One was on the road almost directly above me. I made myself small and still. I held on to Smithy in my mind the way a child grips a beloved toy as protection against nightmares. I had to get home to him, therefore I must not be discovered. The knowledge that I must do the first somehow made the second seem more possible. Men scrabbled hastily from the ship. Everything about them bespoke familiarity. I could not fathom why they had put in here until I saw them unloading empty water casks. The casks were sent hollowly rolling down the causeway, and I remembered the well I had passed. The part of my mind that belonged to Chade noted how well they knew Forge, to put in almost exactly opposite that well. This was not the first time this ship had stopped here for water. Poison the well before you leave, he suggested but I had no supplies for anything like that, and no courage to do anything except remain hidden. Others had emerged from the ship and were stretching their legs. I overheard an argument between a woman and a man. He wished permission to light a fire with some of the driftwood to roast some meat. She forbade it, saying they had not come far enough and that a fire would be too visible. So they had raided recently to have fresh meat, and not too far from here. She gave permission for something else that I did not quite understand until I saw them unload two full kegs. 
Another man came ashore with a whole ham on his shoulder, which he dropped with a meaty slap onto one of the upright kegs. He drew a knife and began to carve off chunks of it while another man broached the other keg. They would not be leaving any time soon, and if they did light a fire or stay until dawn, my log's shadow would be no hiding place at all. I had to get out of here. Through nests of sand fleas and squiggling piles of seaweed, under and between logs and stones, I dragged my belly through sand and pebbled gravel. I swear that every root snag caught at me, and every shifted slab of stone blocked my way. The tide had changed. The waves broke noisily against the rocks, and the flying spray rode the wind. I was soon soaked. I tried to time my movement with the sound of the breaking waves to hide my small sound in theirs. The rocks were toothed with barnacles, and sand packed the gouges they made in my hands and knees. My staff became an incredible burden, but I would not abandon my only weapon. Long after I could no longer see or hear the raiders, I dared not stand, but crept and huddled still from stone to log. At last I ventured up onto the road and crawled across it. Once in the shadow of a sagging warehouse, I stood, hugging the wall, and peered about me. All was silent. I dared to step out two steps onto the road, but even there I could see nothing of the ship or the sentries. Perhaps that meant they could not see me either. I took a calming breath. I quested after Smithy the way some men pat their pouches to be sure their coin is safe. I found him, but faint and quiet. His mind was like a still pool. I'm coming. I breathed, fearful of stirring him to any effort, and I set forth again. The wind was relentless, and my salt-wet clothing clung and chafed. I was hungry, cold and tired. My wet shoes were a misery, but I had no thought of stopping. I trotted like a wolf, my eyes continually shifting, my ears keen for any sound behind me. One moment the road was empty and black before me. In the next, the darkness had turned to men, two before me, and when I spun about, another behind me. The slapping waves had covered the sound of their feet, and the dodging moon offered me but glimpses of them. As they closed the distance around me, I set my back to the solid wall of a warehouse, readied my staff, and waited. I watched them come, silent and skulking. I wondered at that, for why did they not raise a shout? Why did not the whole crew come to watch me taken? But these men watched one another as much as they watched me. They did not hunt as a pack, but each hoped the others would die killing me and leave the bounty for the picking forged ones, not raiders. A terrible coldness welled up in me. The least sound of a scuffle would bring the raiders. I was sure. So if the forged ones did not finish me, the raiders would, but... When all roads lead to death, there is no point to running down any of them. I would take things as they came. There were three of them. One had a knife, but I had a staff and was trained to use it. They were thin, ragged, and at least as hungry as I, and as cold. One, I think, 
was the woman from the night before. As they closed on me so silently, I guess they were aware of the raiders and feared them as much as I did. It was not good to consider the desperation that would prompt them to still attack me. But in the next breath, I wondered if the forged ones felt desperation or anything else. Perhaps they were too dulled to realize the danger. All of the stealthy, arcane knowledge Chade had given me, all of Hod's brutally elegant strategies for fighting two or more opponents went to the wind, for as the first two stepped into my range, I felt the tiny warmth that was Smithy ebbing in my grasp. Smithy! I whispered, a desperate plea that he somehow stay with me. I all but saw a tail-tip stir in a last effort at a wag. Then the thread snapped, and the spark blinked out. I was alone. A black flood of strength surged through me like a madness. I stepped out, thrust the end of my staff deep into a man's face, drew it quickly back, and continued a swing that went through the woman's lower jaw. Plain wood sheared the lower half of her face away, so forceful was my blow. I whacked her again as she fell, and it was like hitting a netted shark with a fish-bat. The third drove into me solidly, thinking, I suppose, to be inside my staff's range. I didn't care. I dropped my stick and grappled with him. He was bony and he stank. I drove him onto his back, and his expelled breath in my face stank of carrion. Fingers and teeth, I tore at him, as far from human as he was. They had kept me from Smithy, and he was dying. I did not care what I did to him as long as it hurt him. He reciprocated. I dragged his face along the cobbles. I pushed my thumb into an eye. He sank his teeth into my wrist and clawed my cheek bloody. And when at last he ceased to fight against my strangling grip, I dragged him to the seawall and threw his body down onto the rocks. I stood panting, my fists still clenched. I glared toward the raiders, daring them to come. But the night was still, save for the waves and wind and the soft gargling of the woman as she died. Either the raiders had not heard, or they were too concerned with their own stealth to investigate sounds in the night. I waited in the wind for someone to care enough to come and kill me. Nothing stirred. An emptiness washed through me, supplanting my madness. So much death in one night and so little significance, save to me. I left the other broken bodies atop the crumbling seawall for the waves and the gulls to dispose of. I walked away from them. I had felt nothing from them when I killed them. No fear, no anger, no pain, not even despair. They had been things. And as I began my long walk back to Buckkeep, I finally felt nothing from within myself. Perhaps, I thought, forging is a contagion, and I have caught it now. I could not bring myself to care. Little of that journey stands out in my mind now. I walked all the way, cold, tired, and hungry. I encountered no more forged ones, and the few other travellers I saw on that stretch of road were no more anxious than I to speak to a stranger. I thought only of getting back to Buck Keep and Burridge. I reached Buck Keep two days into the Springfest celebration. 
The guards at the gate tried to stop me at first. I looked at them. It's the Fitz, one gasped. It was said you were dead. Shut up, barked the other. He was Gage, long known to me, and he said quickly, Burridge has been hurt. He's up to the infirmary, boy. I nodded and walked past them. In all my years at Buckkeep, I had never been to the infirmary. Burridge and no one else had always treated my childhood illnesses and mishaps. But I knew where it was. I walked unseeing through the knots and gatherings of merrymakers, and suddenly felt as if I were six years old and come to Buckkeep for the very first time. I had hung on to Burridge's belt. All that long way from Moon's Eye, with his leg torn and bandaged, but not once had he put me on another's horse or entrusted my care to another. I pushed myself through the people, with their bells and flowers and sweet cakes to reach the inner keep. Behind the barracks was a separate building of whitewashed stone. There was no one there, and I walked unchallenged through the antechamber and into the room beyond. There were clean strewing herbs on the floor, and the wide windows let in a flood of spring air and light, but the room still gave me a sense of confinement and illness. This was not a good place for Burridge to be. All the beds were empty, save one. No soldier kept to bed on Springfest days, save that they had to. Burridge lay, eyes closed, in a splash of sunlight on a narrow cot. I had never seen him so still. He had pushed his blankets aside and his chest was swathed in bandages. I went forward quietly and sat down on the floor beside his bed. He was very still, but I could feel him, and the bandages moved with his slow breathing. I took his hand. Fitz, he said, without opening his eyes. He gripped my hand hard. Yes, you're back. You're alive. I am. I came straight here as fast as I could. Oh, Burridge, I feared you were dead. I thought you were dead. The others all came back days ago. He took a ragged breath. Of course the bastard left horses with all the others. No, I reminded him, not letting go of his hand. I'm the bastard, remember? Sorry. He opened his eyes. The white of his left eye was mazed with blood. He tried to smile at me. I could see then that the swelling on the left side of his face was still subsiding. So, we look a fine pair. You should poultice that cheek, it's festering. Looks like an animal scratch. Forged ones, I began, and could not bear to explain more. I only said, softly, He set me down north of Forge, Burridge. Anger spasmed his face. He wouldn't tell me, nor anyone else. I even sent a man to Verity to ask my prince to make him say what he had done with you. I got no answer back. I should kill him. Let it go. 
I said, and meant it. I'm back and alive. I failed his test, but it didn't kill me. And as you told me, there are other things in my life. Burritch shifted slightly in his bed. I could tell it didn't ease him. Well, he'll be disappointed over that. He let out a shuddering breath. I got jumped. Someone with a knife, I don't know who. How bad? Not good at my age. A young buck like you would probably just give a shake and go on. Still, he only got the blade into me once, but I fell and struck my head. I was fair senseless for two days in fits. Your dog. The stupid, senseless thing, but he killed your dog. I know. He died quickly. Burridge said, as if to be a comfort. I stiffened at the lie. He died well, I corrected him. And if he hadn't, you'd have had that knife in you more than once. Burridge grew very still. You were there, weren't you? He said at last. It was not a question, and there was no mistaking his meaning. Yes, I heard myself saying simply. You were there with the dog that night instead of trying for the skill? His voice rose in outrage. Burritch, it wasn't like... He pulled his hand free of mine and turned as far away from me as he could. Leave me! Burritch, it wasn't Smithy. I just don't have the skill. So let me have what I do have. Let me be what I am. I don't use this in a bad way. Even without it, I'm good with animals. You forced me to be. If I use it, I can... Stay out of my stables and stay away from me. He rolled back to face me, and to my amazement, a single tear tracked his dark cheek. You failed? No, Fitz. I failed. I was too soft-hearted to beat it out of you at the first sign of it. Raise him well, chivalry said to me, his last command to me, and I failed him. And you, if you hadn't meddled with the wit fits, you'd have been able to learn the skill. Galen would have been able to teach you. No wonder he sent you to forge. He paused. Bastard or no, you could have been a fit son to chivalry, but you threw it all away. For what? A dog? I know what a dog can be to a man. But you don't throw your life over for a... Not just a dog. I cut in almost harshly. Smithy. My friend. And it wasn't only him. I gave up the weight and came back for you, thinking you might need me. Smithy died days ago, I knew that, but I came back for you, thinking you might need me. He was silent so long, I thought he wasn't going to speak to me. You needn't have, he said quietly. I take care of myself. And harsher. You know that, I always have. And me, I admitted to him. And you've always taken care of me. And small damn good that did either of us. 
he said slowly. Look at what I've let you become. Now you're just... Go away, just go away. He turned away from me again, and I felt something go out of the man. I stood slowly. I'll make a wash from Helena leaves for your eye. I'll bring it this afternoon. Bring me nothing. Do me no favors. Go your own way, and be whatever you will. I'm done with you. He spoke to the wall. In his voice was no mercy for either of us. I glanced back as I left the infirmary. Burridge had not moved, but even his back looked older and smaller. That was my return to Buckkeep. I was a different creature from the naïf who had left. Little fanfare was made over my not being dead, as supposed. I made no opportunity for anyone to do so. From Burridge's bed I went straight to my room. I washed and changed my garments. I slept, but not well. For the rest of Springfest, I ate at night, alone in the kitchens. I penned one note to King Shrewd, suggesting that raiders might regularly be using the wells at Forge. He made no reply to me about it, and I was glad of it. I sought no contact with anyone. With much pomp and ceremony, Galen presented his finished coterie to the king. One other, besides myself, had failed to return. It shames me now that I cannot recall his name, and if I ever knew what became of him, I have forgotten it. Like Galen, I suppose I dismissed him as insignificant. Galen spoke to me only once the rest of that summer, and that was indirectly. We passed one another in the courtyard not long after Spring Fest. He was walking and talking with Regal. As they passed me, he looked at me over Regal's head and said sneeringly, More lives than a cat. I stopped and stared at them until both were forced to look at me. I made Galen meet my eyes. Then I smiled and nodded. I never confronted Galen about his attempt to send me to my death. He never appeared to see me after that. His eyes would slide past me, or he would exit a room when I entered it. It seemed to me that I had lost everything when I lost Smithy, or perhaps in my bitterness I set out to destroy what little was left to me. I sulked about the keep for weeks, cleverly insulting anyone foolish enough to speak to me. The fool avoided me. Chade didn't summon me. I saw Patience thrice. The first two times I went to answer her summons, I made only the barest efforts to be civil. The third time, bored by her chatter about rose-cuttings, I simply stood up and left. She did not summon me again. But there came a time when I felt I had to reach out to someone. Smithy had left a great gap in my life, and I had not expected that my exile from the stables would be as devastating as it was. Chance encounters with Burridge were incredibly awkward, as we both learned painfully to pretend not to see each other. I wanted achingly to go to Molly, to tell her everything that had befallen me, all that had happened to me since I first came to Buck Keep. I imagined in detail how we could sit on the beach while I talked, and that when I was done, she would not judge me or try to offer advice, but would just take my hand and be still beside me. Finally, someone would know everything, and I would not have to hide anything from her any more, and she wouldn't turn away.
I dared imagine no more beyond that. I longed desperately and feared with the fear known only to a boy whose love is two years older than he is. If I took her all my woes, would she think me a hapless child and pity me? Would she hate me for all that I had never told her before? A dozen times that thought turned my feet away from Buckkeep Town. But some two months later, when I did venture into town, my traitorous feet took me to the chandlery. I happened to have a basket with me, and a bottle of cherry wine in it, and four or five brambly little yellow roses obtained at great loss of skin from the women's garden, where their fragrance overpowered even the thyme-beds. I told myself I had no plan. I did not have to tell her everything about myself. I did not even have to see her. I could decide as I went along. But in the end, all decisions had already been made, and they had nothing to do with me. I arrived just in time to see Molly leaving on Jade's arm. Their heads were close together, and she leaned on his arm as they spoke in soft voices. Outside the door of the chandlery, he stopped to look into her face. She lifted her eyes to his. When the man reached a hesitant hand to gently touch her cheek, Molly was suddenly a woman. One I did not know. The two-year age difference between us was a vast gulf I could never hope to bridge. I stepped around the corner before she could see me and turned aside, my face down. They passed me as if I were a tree or a stone. Her head leaned on his shoulder, and they walked slowly. It took forever for them to be out of sight. That night, I got drunker than I had ever been and awoke the next day in some bushes halfway up the keep road. 18. Assassinations Chade Falstaff, a personal adviser to King Shrewd, made an extensive study of forging during the period just preceding the Red Ship Wars. From his tablets, we have the following. Netta, daughter of the fisherman Gill and the farmer Ryder, was taken alive from her village Goodwater on the seventeenth day after Spring Fest. She was forged by the Red Ship Raiders and returned to her village three days later. Her father was killed in the same raid, and her mother, having five younger children, was little able to deal with Netta. She was, at the time of her forging, fourteen summers old. She came into my possession some six months after her forging. When first brought to me, she was dirty, ragged, and greatly weakened due to starvation and exposure. At my direction, she was washed, clothed, and housed in chambers convenient to my own. I proceeded with her as I might have with a wild animal. Each day I brought her food with my own hands and stayed by her while she ate. I saw to it that her chambers were kept warm, her bedding clean, and that she was provided with the amenities a woman might expect, water for washing, brushes and combs, and all that is needful to a woman. In addition, I saw to it that she was furnished with sundry supplies for needlework, for I had discovered that prior to forging she had had a great fondness for doing such fancy work, and had created several artful pieces. My intention in all of this was to see if, under gentle circumstances, a forged one might not return to a semblance of the person she had formerly been. Even a wild animal might have become a little tamer under these circumstances, 
but to all things Netta reacted with indifference. She had lost not only the habits of a woman, but even the good sense of an animal. She would eat to satiation with her hands, and then let fall to the floor whatever was excess to be trodden underfoot. She did not wash nor care for herself in any way. Even most animals soil only one area of their dens, but as for Netta, she was like a mouse that lets her droppings fall everywhere with no care for bedding. She was able to speak in a sensible way if she chose to, or wanted some item badly enough. When she spoke by her own choice, it was usually to accuse me of stealing from her, or to utter threats against me if I did not immediately give her some item she had decided she wanted. Her habitual attitude toward me was suspicious and hateful. She ignored my attempts at normal conversation, but by withholding food from her, I was able to elicit answers in exchange for food. She had clear memory of her family, but had no interest in what had become of them. Rather, she answered those questions as if answering questions about yesterday's weather. Of her forging time, she said only that they had been in the belly of a ship, and that there had been little food and only enough water to go around. She had been fed nothing unusual that she recalled, nor had she been touched in any way that she remembered. Thus, she could furnish to me no clue as to the mechanism of forging itself. This was a great disappointment to me, for I had hoped that by learning how a thing was done, a man could discover how to undo it. I endeavoured to bring human behaviour back to her by reasoning with her, but to no avail. She appeared to understand my words, but would not act on them. Even when given two loaves of bread and warned that she must save one for the morrow or go hungry, she would let her second loaf fall to the floor, tread upon it, and on the morrow eat her own dropped leavings, careless of what dirt clung to them. She evinced no interest in her needlework, or in any other pastime, not even the bright toys of a child. If not eating or sleeping, she was content merely to sit or lie, her mind as idle as her body. Offered sweets or pastries, she would indulge until she vomited, and then eat more. I treated her with sundry elixirs and herbal teas. I fasted her, I steamed her, I purged her body. Hot and cold dowsings had no effect other than to make her hungry. I caused her to sleep a full day and a night, to no change. I so charged her with elf-bark that she could not sleep for two nights, but this only made her irritable. I spoiled her with kindness for a time, but, as when I treated her with the harshest restrictions, it made no difference to her, or in how she regarded me. If hungry, she would make courtesies and smile pleasantly when commanded to, but as soon as food was furnished her, all further commands and requests were ignored. She was viciously jealous of territory and possessions. More than once she attempted to attack me, for no more reason than that I had ventured too close to food she was eating, and once because she suddenly decided she wished to have a ring I was wearing. She regularly killed the mice her untidiness attracted, snatching them up with amazing swiftness and dashing them against the wall. A cat that once ventured into her chambers met with a similar fate. She seemed to have little sense of the time that had passed since her forging. She could give no good account of her earlier life, if commanded when hungry. 
but of the days since her forging, all was one long yesterday to her. From Netta, I could not learn if something had been added to her or taken away to forge her. I did not know if it was a thing consumed or smelled or heard or seen. I did not know if it was even the work of a man's hand or art, or the work of a sea demon such as some Farlanders claim to have power upon, from a long and weary experiment. I learned nothing. To Netta, I gave a triple sleeping draught one evening with her water. I had her body bathed, her hair groomed, and sent her back to her village to be decently buried. At least one family could put Fini to a tale of forging. Most others must wonder, for months and years, what has become of the one they once held dear. Most are better off not knowing. There were, at that time, over one thousand souls known to have been forged. Burrich had meant what he said. He had nothing more to do with me. I was no longer welcome down at the stables and kennels. Cobb especially took savage pleasure in this. Although he was often gone with Regal, when he was about the stables he would often step to block my entry. Allow me to bring you your horse, master, he would say obsequiously. The stable master prefers that grooms handle animals within the stables. And so I must stand like some incompetent lordling, while Sooty was saddled and brought for me. Cobb himself mucked her stall and brought her feed and groomed her, and it ate at me like acid to see how quickly she welcomed him back. She was only a horse, I told myself, and not to be blamed. But it was one more abandonment. I had too much time, suddenly. Mornings had always been spent working for Burridge. Now they were mine. Hard was busy training green men for defence. I was welcome to drill with them, but it was all lessons I had learned long ago. Fedrin was gone for the summer, as he was every summer. I could not think of a way to apologise to patients, and I did not even think about Molly. Even my forays to the taverns in Buckkeep had become solitary ones. Carey had apprenticed to a puppeteer, and Dirk gone for a sailor. I was idle and alone. It was a summer of misery, and not just for me. While I was lonely and bitter and outgrowing all my clothes, while I snapped and snarled at any foolish enough to speak to me and drank myself insensible several times a week, I was still aware of how the six duchies were racked. The red ship raiders, bolder than ever before, harried our coastline. This summer, in addition to threats, they finally began to make demands. Grain, cattle, the right to take whatever they wished from our seaports, the right to beach their boats and live off our lands and people for the summer, their choice of our folk for slaves. Each demand was more intolerable than the last, and the only thing more intolerable than the demands were the forgings that followed each refusal by the king. Common folk were abandoning the seaport and waterfront towns. One could not blame them, but it left our coastline even more vulnerable. More soldiers were hired, and more, and so the levies were raised to pay them, 
and folk grumbled under the burden of the taxes and their fear of the red ship raiders. Even stranger were the out-islanders who came to our shore in their family ships, their raiding vessels left behind, to beg asylum of our people, and to tell wild tales of chaos and tyranny in the out-islands, where the red ships now ruled completely. They were mixed blessings, perhaps. They were cheaply hired as soldiers, though few really trusted them. But at least their tales of the out-islands under red ship domination were harrowing enough to keep anyone from thinking of giving in to the raiders' demands. About a month after my return, Chade opened his door to me. I was sullen over his neglect of me, and went more slowly up his stairs than ever I had before. But when I got there, he looked up from crushing seeds with a pestle and a face full of weariness. I am glad to see you, he said, with nothing of gladness in his voice. That's why you were so swift to welcome me back, I answered sourly. He stopped his grinding. I'm sorry. I thought perhaps you would need a time alone to recover yourself. He looked back to his seeds. It has not been an easy winter and spring for me either. Shall we try to put the time behind us and go on? It was a gentle, reasonable suggestion. I knew it was wise. Have I any choice? I asked sarcastically. Chade finished grinding his seed. He scraped it into a finely woven sieve and put it under a cup to drip. No, he said at last, as if he had considered it well. No, you don't, and neither do I. In many things we have no choice. He looked at me, his eyes running up and down me, and then poked at his seed again. You, he said. We'll stop drinking anything but water or tea for the rest of the summer. Your sweat stinks of wine. And for one so young, your muscles are lax. A winter of Galen's meditations has done your body no good at all. See that you exercise it. Take it upon yourself as of today to climb to Verity's Tower four times a day. You will take him food, and the teas I will show you how to prepare. You will never show him a sullen face, but will always be cheerful and friendly. Perhaps a while of waiting on Verity will convince you that I have had reasons for my attention not being centred on you. That is what you will do each day you are at Buckkeep. There will be some days when you will be fulfilling other assignments for me. It had not taken many words from Chade to awaken shame in myself. My perception of my life crashed from high tragedy to juvenile self-pity in a matter of moments. I have been idle, I admitted. You have been stupid, Chade agreed. You had a month in which to take charge of your own life. You behaved like a, a spoiled brat. I have no wonder that Burrich is disgusted with you. I had long ago stopped being surprised at what Chade knew, but this time... I was sure he did not know the real reason, and I had no desire to share it with him. Have you discovered yet who tried to kill him? I haven't tried, really. Now Chade looked disgusted, and then puzzled. Boy, you are not yourself at all. Six months ago you would have torn the stables apart to know such a secret. Six months ago, given a month's holiday, you would have filled each day. 
What troubles you? I looked down, feeling the truth of his words. I wanted to tell him everything that had befallen me. I wanted not to say a word of it to anyone. I'll tell you all I do know of the attack on Burridge. And I did. And the one who saw all this, he asked when I had finished, did he know the man who attacked Burridge? He didn't get a good look at him. I hedged. Useless to tell Chade that I knew exactly how he smelled, but had only a vague visual image. Chade was quiet for a moment. Well, as much as you can, keep an ear to the earth. I should like to know who has grown so brave as to kill the king's stablemaster in his own stable. Then, you do not think it was just some personal quarrel of Burridge's? I asked carefully. Perhaps it was, but we will not jump to conclusions. To me, it has the feel of a gambit. Someone is building to something, but has missed their first block. To our advantage, I hope. Can you tell me why you think so? I could, but I will not. I want to leave your mind free to find its own assumptions, independent of mine. Now come. I will show you the tease. I was more than a bit hurt that he asked me nothing about my time with Galen, or my test. He seemed to accept my failure as a thing expected. But as he showed me the ingredients he had chosen for Verity's teas, I was horrified by the strength of the stimulants he was using. I had seen little of my Verity, though Regal had been only too much in evidence. He had spent the last month coming and going. He was always just returning or just leaving, and each cavalcade seemed richer and more ornate than the one before. It seemed to me that he was using the excuse of his brother's courting to feather himself more brightly than any peacock. Common opinion was that he must go so to impress those he negotiated with. For myself, I saw it as a waste of coin that could have gone to defences. When Regal was gone, I felt relief for his antagonism toward me had taken a recent bound, and he had found sundry small ways to express it. The brief times when I had seen Verity or the King, they had both looked harassed and worn, but Verity especially had seemed almost stunned. Impassive and distracted, he had noticed me only once, and then smiled wearily, and said I had grown. That had been the extent of our conversation but I had noticed that he ate like an invalid, without appetite, eschewing meat and bread, as if they were too great of an effort to chew and swallow, and instead subsisting on porridges and soups. He is using the skill too much. That much Shrewd has told me, but why it should drain him so, why it should burn the very flesh from his bones, he cannot explain to me. So I give him tonics and elixirs and try to get him to rest, but he cannot, he dares not, he says. He tells me that only all his efforts are sufficient to delude the red ship navigators, to send their ships onto the rocks, to discourage their captains. And so he rises from bed and goes to his chair by a window, and there he sits, all day. And Galen's coterie, are they of no use to him? I asked the question almost jealously, almost hoping to hear they were of no consequence. Chade sighed. 
I think he uses them as I would use carrier pigeons. He has sent them out to the towers, and he uses them to convey warnings to his soldiers and to receive from them sightings of ships. But the task of defending the coast he trusts to no one else. Others, he tells me, would be too inexperienced. They might betray themselves to those they skilled. I do not understand, but I know he cannot continue much longer. I pray for the end of summer, for winter storms to blow the red ships home. Would there was someone to spell him at this work. I fear it will consume him. I took that as a rebuke for my failure, and subsided into a sulky silence. I drifted around his chambers, finding them both familiar and strange after my months of absence. The apparatus for his herbal work was, as always, cluttered about. Slink was very much in evidence, with his smelly bits of bones in corners. As always, there was an assortment of tablets and scrolls by various chairs. This crop seemed to deal mostly with elderlings. I wandered about, intrigued by the coloured illustrations. One tablet, older and more elaborate than the rest, depicted an elderling as a sort of gilded bird, with a man-like head crowned with quillish hair. I began to piece out the words. It was in Peach, an ancient native tongue of Chalcid, the southernmost duchy. Many of the painted symbols had faded or flaked away from the old wood, and I had never been fluent in Peach. Chade, came to stand at my elbow. You know, he said gently, it was not easy for me, but I kept my word. Galen demanded complete control of his students. He expressly stipulated that no one might contact you or interfere in any way with your discipline and instruction. And as I told you in the Queen's Garden, I am blind without influence. I knew that, I muttered. Yet I did not disagree with Burrich's actions. Only my word to my king kept me from contacting you. He paused cautiously. It has been a difficult time, I know. I wish I could have helped you. And you should not feel too badly that you... failed. I filled in the word while he searched for a gentler one. I sighed, and suddenly admitted my pain. Let's leave it, Chade. I can't change it. I know. Then, even more carefully, but perhaps we can use what you learned of the skill. If you can help me understand it, perhaps I can devise better ways to spare verity. For so many years the knowledge has been kept too secret. There is scarcely a mention of it in the old scrolls, save to say that such and such a battle was turned by the king's skill upon his soldiers, or such and such an enemy was confounded by the king's skill. Yet there is nothing of how it is done, or— Despair closed its grip on me again. Leave it. It is not for bastards to know. I think I've proved that. A silence fell between us. At last— Chade sighed heavily. Well, that's his maybe. I've been looking into forging as well over these last few months, but all I've learned of it is what it is not, and what does not work to change it. 
The only cure I've found for it is the oldest one known to work on anything. I rolled and fastened the scroll I had been looking at, feeling I knew what was coming. I was not mistaken. The king has charged me with an assignment for you. That summer, over three months, I killed seventeen times for the king. Had I not already killed out of my own volition and defence, it might have been harder. The assignments might have seemed simple, me, a horse, and panniers of poisoned bread. I rode roads where travellers had reported being attacked, and when the forged ones attacked me, I fled, leaving a trail of spilled loaves. Perhaps if I had been an ordinary man-at-arms, I would have been less frightened, but all my life I had been accustomed to relying on my wit to let me know when others were about. To me it was tantamount to having to work without using my eyes, and I swiftly found out that not all forged ones had been cobblers and weavers. The second little clan of them that I poisoned had several soldiers among them. I was fortunate that most of them were squabbling over loaves when I was dragged from my horse. I took a deep cut from a knife, and to this day I bear the scar on my left shoulder. They were strong and competent, and seemed to fight as a unit, perhaps because that was how they had been drilled, back when they were fully human. I would have died, except that I cried out to them that it was foolish to struggle with me while the others were eating all the bread. They dropped me. I struggled to my horse and escaped. The poisons were no crueler than they had to be, but to be effective, even in the smallest dosage, we had to use harsh ones. The forged ones did not die gently, but it was as swift a death as Chade could concoct. They snatched their deaths from me eagerly, and I did not have to witness their frothing convulsions or even see their bodies by the road. When news of the fallen forged ones reached Buck Keep, Chade's tale that they had probably died from eating spoiled fish from spawning streams had already spread as a ubiquitous rumour. Relatives collected the bodies and gave them proper burial. I told myself they were probably relieved, and that the forged ones had met a quicker end than if they had starved to death over the winter. And so I became accustomed to killing, and had nearly a score of deaths to my credit, before I had to meet the eyes of a man, and then kill him. That one too was not so difficult as it might have been. He was a minor lordling, holding lands outside of Terlake. The story reached Buck Keep that he had, in a temper, struck the child of a servant, and left the girl a whittling. That was sufficient to raid King Shrewd's lip. The lordling had paid the full blood debt, and by accepting it, the servant had given up any form of the king's justice. But some months later, there came to court a cousin of the girl's, and she petitioned for private audience with Shrewd. I was sent to confirm her tale, and saw how the girl was kept like a dog at the foot of the lordling's chair, and more, how her belly had begun to swell with child. And so it was not too difficult, as he offered me wine and fine crystal, and begged the latest news of the king's court at Buck Keep, for me to find a time to lift his glass to the light, and praise the quality of both vessel and wine. I left some days later my errand completed, and the samples of paper I had promised for Fedrin, 
and the conveyed wishes of the lordling for a good trip home. The lordling was indisposed that day. He died in blood and madness and froth a month or so later. The cousin took in both girl and child. To this day, I have no regrets for the deed or for the choice of slow death for him. And when I was not dealing death to forged ones, I waited on my lord Prince Verity. I remember the first time I climbed all those stairs to his tower, balancing a tray as I went. I had expected a guard or sentry at the top. There was none. I tapped at the door and received no answer, entered quietly. Verity was sitting in a chair by the window. A summer wind off the ocean blew into the room. It could have been a pleasant chamber, full of light and air on a stuffy summer day. Instead, it seemed to me a cell. There was a chair by the window and a small table next to it. In the corners and around the edges of the room, the floor was dusty and littered with bits of old strewing reeds. And Verity, chin slumped to his chest as if dozing, except that to my senses the room thrummed with his effort. His hair was unkempt, his chin bewhiskered with a day's growth. His clothing hung on him. I pushed the door shut with my foot and took the tray to the table. I set it down and stood beside it, quietly waiting, and in a few minutes he came back from wherever he had been. He looked up at me with a ghost of his old smile, and then down at his tray. What's this? Breakfast, sir. Everyone else ate hours ago, save yourself. I ate, boy, early this morning. Some awful fish soup. The cook should be hanged for that. No one should face fish first thing in the morning. He seemed uncertain, like some doddering gaffer, trying to recall the days of his youth. That was yesterday, sir. I uncovered the plates. Warm bread swirled with honey and raisins, cold meats, a dish of strawberries, and a small pot of cream for them. All were small portions, almost a child's serving. I poured the steaming tea into a waiting mug. It was flavoured heavily with ginger and peppermint to cover the ground elf-bark's tang. Verity glanced at it, and then up to me. Chade never relents, does he? Spoken so casually, as if Chade's name were mentioned every day about the keep. You need to eat if you are to continue, I said neutrally. I suppose, he said wearily and turned to the tray as if the artfully arranged food were yet another duty to attend. He ate with no relish for the food, and drank the tea in a manful draught as a medicine, undeceived by ginger or mint. Halfway through the meal he paused with a sigh and gazed out the window for a bit. Then, seeming to come back again, he forced himself to consume each item completely. He pushed the tray aside and leaned back in the chair as if exhausted. I stared. I had prepared the tea myself. That much elf-bark would have had sooty leaping over the stall walls. My prince, I said, and when he did not stir I touched his shoulder lightly. Verity, are you all right? Verity, he repeated, as in a daze. Yes. 
and I prefer that to sir, or my prince, or my lord. This is my father's gambit to send you. Well, I may surprise him yet, but yes, call me Verity, and tell them I ate. Obedient as ever I ate. Go on now, boy, I have work to do. He seemed to rouse himself with an effort, and once more his gaze went afar. I stacked the dishes as quietly as I could atop the tray and headed toward the door. But as I lifted the latch, he spoke again. Boy? Sir? Ah, ah, he warned me. Verity? Leon is in my rooms, boy. Take him out for me, will you? He pines. There is no sense in the both of us shriveling like this. Yes, sir. Verity. And so the old hound, past his prime now, came to be in my care. Each day I took him from Verity's room, and we hunted the back hills and cliffs and the beaches for wolves that had not run there in a score of years. As Chade had suspected, I was badly out of condition, and at first it was all I could do to keep up, even with the old hound. But as the days went by, we regained our tone, and Leon even caught a rabbit or two for me. Now that I was exiled from Burrich's domain, I did not scruple to use the wit whenever I wished. But as I had discovered long ago, I could communicate with Leon, but there was no bond. He did not always heed me, nor even believe me all the time. Had he been but a pup, I am sure we could have bonded to one another, but he was old and his heart given forever to Verity. The wit was not dominion over beasts, but only a glimpse into their lives. And thrice a day I climbed the steeply winding steps to coax Verity to eat, and to a few words of conversation. Some days it was like speaking to a child or a doddering oldster. On others he asked after Leon, and quizzed me about matters down in Buckkeep Town, Sometimes I was absent for days on my other assignments. Usually he seemed not to have noticed, but once, after the foray in which I took my knife wound, he watched me awkwardly load his empty dishes onto the tray. How they must laugh in their beards, if they know we slay our own. I froze, wondering what answer to make to that, for as far as I knew my tasks were known only to shrewd and chade, but Verity's eyes had gone afar again, and I left silently. Without intending to, I began to make changes around him. One day, while he was eating, I swept the room, and later that evening brought up in a separate trip a sack full of strewing reeds and herbs. I had worried that I might be a distraction to him, but Chade had taught me to move quietly. I worked without speaking to him, and as for Verity— he acknowledged neither my coming nor going. But the room was freshened, and the vivaria blossoms mixed in with the strewing herbs were an enlivening scent. Coming in once, I discovered him dozing in his hard-backed chair. I brought up cushions, which he ignored for several days, and then one day had arranged to his liking. The room remained bare, but I sensed he needed it so to preserve his single-mindedness. So what I brought him were the barest items of comfort, no tapestries or wall hangings, no vases of flowers or tinkling wind chimes, but flowering times in pots to ease the headaches that plagued him, 
and on one stormy day a blanket against the rain and chill from the open window. On that day I found him sleeping in his chair, limp as a dead thing. I tucked the blanket around him as if he were an invalid, and set the tray before him but left it covered to keep the good heat in the food. I sat down on the floor next to his chair, propped against one of his discarded cushions, and listened to the silence of the room. It seemed almost peaceful today, despite the driving summer rain outside the open window, and the gale wind that gusted in from time to time. I must have dozed, for I woke to his hand on my hair. Do they tell you to watch over me so, boy, even when I sleep? What do they fear, then? Not that I know, Verity. They tell me only to bring you food and see as best I can that you eat it. No more than that. And blankets and cushions and pots of sweet flowers. My own doing, my prince. No man should live in such a desert as this. And in that moment I realized we were not speaking aloud, and sat bolt upright and looked at him. Verity, too, seemed to come to himself. He shifted in his comfortless chair. I bless this storm that lets me rest. I hid it from thee of their ships, persuading those who looked to the sky that it was no more than a summer squall. Now they ply their oars and peer through the rain, trying to keep their courses, and I can snatch a few moments of honest sleep. He paused. I ask your pardon, boy. Sometimes now the skilling seems more natural than speaking. I did not mean to intrude on you. No matter, my prince. I was but startled. I cannot skill myself except weakly and erratically. I do not know how I opened to you. Verity, boy, not your prince. No one's prince sits still in a sweaty shirt with two days of beard. But what is this nonsense? Surely it was arranged for you to learn the skill. I remember well how Patience's tongue battered away my father's resolve. He permitted himself a weary smile. Galen tried to teach me, but I had not the aptitude. With bastards, I am told it is often— Wait, he growled, and in an instant was within my head. This is faster he offered, by way of apology, and then, muttering to himself, What is this that clouds you so? Ah! And was gone again from my mind, and all as deft and easy as Burridge taking a tick off a hound's ear. He sat long, quiet, and so did I, wondering. I am strong in it, as was your father. Galen is not. Then— how did he become skillmaster? I asked quietly. I wondered if Verity was saying this only to somehow make me feel my failure less. Verity paused as if skirting a delicate subject. Galen was Queen Desire's pet, a favorite. The Queen emphatically suggested Galen as apprentice to solicity. Often I think our old skillmaster was desperate when she took him as apprentice. Solicity knew she was dying, you see. I believe she acted in haste and, toward the end, regretted her decision. 
and I do not think he had half the training he should have had before becoming master. But there he is, he is what we have. Verity cleared his throat and looked uncomfortable. I will speak as plainly as I can, boy, for I see that you know how to hold your tongue when it is wise. Galen was given that place as a plum, not because he merited it. I do not think he has ever fully grasped what it means to be the skillmaster. Oh, he knows the position carries power, and he has not scrupled to wield it. But Solicity was more than someone who swaggered about secure in a high position. Solicity was adviser to bounty, and a link between the king and all who skilled for him. She made it her business to seek out and teach as many as manifested real talent and the judgment to use it well. This coterie is the first group Galen has trained since chivalry and I were boys, and I do not find them well taught. No, they are trained, as monkeys and parrots are taught to mimic men, with no understanding of what they do. But they are what we have. Verity looked out the window and spoke softly. Galen has no finesse. He is as coarse as his mother was, and just as presumptuous. Verity paused suddenly, and his cheeks flushed as if he had said something ill-considered. He resumed more quietly. The skill is like a language boy. I need not shout at you to let you know what I want. I can ask politely, or hint, or let you know my wish with a nod and a smile. I can skill a man and leave him thinking it was all his own idea to please me. But all that eludes Galen, both in the use of the skill and the teaching of it. He uses force to batter his way in. Privation and pain are one way to lower a man's defences. It is the only way Galen believes in. But Solicity used guile. She would have me watch a kite, or a bit of dust floating in a sunbeam, focusing on it as if there were nothing else in the world. And suddenly there she would be, inside my mind with me, smiling and praising me. She taught me that being open was simply not being closed, and going into another's mind is mostly done by being willing to go outside of your own. You see, boy? Somewhat. I hedged. Somewhat. He sighed. I could teach you to skill, had I but the time. I do not. But tell me this. Were your lessons going well before he tested you? No. I never had any aptitude. Wait, that's not true. What am I saying? What have I been thinking? Though I was sitting, I swayed suddenly, my head bounding off the arm of Verity's chair. He reached out a hand and steadied me. I was too swift, I suppose. Steady now, boy. Someone had misted you, befuddled you, much as I do red-ship navigators and steersmen, convinced them they've taken a sighting already, and their course is true, when really they are steering into a cross-current, convinced them they've passed a point they haven't sighted yet. Someone convinced you that you could not skill. Galen! I spoke with certainty. I almost knew the moment he had slammed into me that afternoon, and from that time nothing had been the same. 
I had been living in a fog all those months. Probably. Though if you skilled into him at all, I'm sure you've seen what chivalry did to him. He hated your father with a passion, prior to Shiv turning him into a lapdog. We felt badly about it. We'd have undone it if we could have figured out how to do it and escape Solicity's detection. But Shiv was strong with the skill, and we were all but boys then, and Shiv was angry when he did it over something Galen had done to me, ironically. Even when chivalry was not angry, being skilled by him was like being trampled by a horse, or ducked in a fast-flowing river, more like. He'd get in a hurry and barge into you and dump his information and flee. He paused again and reached to uncover a dish of soup on his tray. I guess I've always assumed you knew all this, though I'm damned if there's any way you could have. Who would have told you? I seized on one piece of information. You could teach me to skill. If I had time, a great deal of time. You're a lot like Shiv and I were when we learned. Erratic, strong, but with no idea how to bring that strength to bear. And Galen has, well, scarred you, I suppose. You've walls I can't begin to penetrate and I am strong. You'd have to learn to drop them, that's a hard thing. But I could teach you, yes, if you and I had a year and nothing else to do. He pushed the soup aside. But we don't. My hopes crashed again. This second wave of disappointment engulfed me, grinding me against stones of frustration. My memories all recorded themselves, and in a surge of anger, I knew all that had been done to me. Were it not for Smithy, I'd have dashed my life out on the base of the tower that night. Galen had tried to kill me, just as surely as if he'd had a knife. No one would even have known of how he'd beaten me save his loyal coterie. And while he'd failed at that, he had taken from me the chance to learn skilling. He'd crippled me, and I would— I leaped to my feet, furious. Whoa! Be slow and careful. You have a grievance, but we cannot have discord within the keep itself right now. Carry it with you until you can settle it quietly. For the king's sake. I bowed my head to the wisdom of his counsel. He lifted the cover of a small roast fowl, dropped it again. Why would you want to learn this skill anyway? It's a miserable thing. No fit occupation for a man. To help you, I said without thinking, and then found it true. Once it would have been to prove myself a true and fit son to chivalry, to impress Burridge or Chade, to increase my standing in the keep. Now, after watching what Verity did day after day with no praise or acknowledgement from his subjects, I found I only wanted to help him. To help me, he repeated. The storm winds were slackening. With exhausted resignation, he lifted his eyes to the window. Take the food away, boy. I've no time for it now. But you need strength, I protested. Guiltily, I knew he had taken time with me that he should have taken for food and sleep. I know. But I have no time. Eating takes energy. 
odd to realize that. I have none extra to give to just that now. His eyes were questing afar now, staring through the sheeting rain that was just beginning to slacken. I'd give you my strength, Verity, if I could. He looked at me oddly. Are you sure? Very sure. I could not understand the intensity of his question, but I knew the answer. Of course I would. And more quietly. I am a king's man. And of my own blood, he affirmed. He sighed. For a moment he looked sickened. He looked again at the food, and again out the window. There is just time, he whispered, and it might be enough damnation to you, father. Must you always win? Come here, then, boy. There was an intensity to his words that frightened me, but I obeyed. When I stood by his chair, he reached out a hand. He placed it on my shoulder, as if he needed assistance to rise. I looked up at him from the floor. There was a pillow under my head, and the blanket I had brought up earlier had been tossed over me. Verity stood, leaning out the window. He was shaking with effort, and the skill he exerted was like battering waves I could almost feel. On to the rocks, he said with deep satisfaction, and whirled from the window. He grinned at me, an old, fierce grin that faded slowly as he looked down on me. Like a calf to the slaughter, he said ruefully. I should have known that you didn't know what you were talking about. What happened to me? I managed to ask. My teeth chattered against each other, and my whole body shook as with a chill. I felt I would rattle my bones out of their joints. You offered me your strength. I took it. He poured a cup of tea, then knelt to hold it to my mouth. Go slowly. I was in a hurry. Did I say earlier that chivalry was a bull with his skill? What must I say about myself, then? He had his old bluff heartiness and good nature back. This was a verity I had not seen for months. I managed a mouthful of the tea and felt the elf-bark sting my mouth and throat. My shivering eased. Verity took a casual gulp from the mug. In the old days, he said conversationally, a king would draw on his coterie, half a dozen men or more, and all in tune with one another, able to pool strength and offer it as needed. That was their true purpose, to provide strength to their king or to their own key man. I don't think Galen quite grasps that. His coterie is a thing he has fashioned. They are like horses and bullocks and donkeys, all harnessed together, not a true coterie at all. They lack the singleness of mind. You drew the strength from me? Yes. Believe me, boy, I would not have, except that I had a sudden need, and I thought you knew what you offered. You yourself named yourself as a king's man, the old term. And as close as we are in blood, I knew I could tap you. He set the mug down on the tray with a thump. Disgust deepened his voice. Shrewd. He sets things in motion, wheels turning, pendulums swaying. It is no accident you are the one to bring me my meals, boy. He was making you available to me. 
He took a swift turn about the room, then stopped, standing over me. It will not happen again. It was not so bad, I said faintly. No? Why don't you try to stand then, or even sit up? You're just one boy, alone, not a coterie. Had I not realized your ignorance and drawn back, I could have killed you. Your heart and breath would just have stopped. I'll not drain you like this, not for anyone. Here. He stooped and, without effort, lifted me and placed me in his chair. Sit here a bit and eat. I don't need it now, and when you are better, go to Shrewd for me. Say that I say you are a distraction. I wish a kitchen boy to bring my meals from now on. Verity, I began. No, he corrected me. Say my prince, for in this I am your prince, and I will not be questioned on it. Now eat. I bowed my head, miserable, but I did eat, and the elf bark in the tea worked to revive me faster than I had expected. Soon I could stand, to stack the dishes on the tray and then to carry them to the door. I felt defeated. I lifted the latch. Fitz chivalry farseer. I halted, frozen by the words. I turned slowly. It's your name, boy. I wrote it myself in the military log, on the day you were brought to me. Another thing I had thought you knew. Stop thinking of yourself as a bastard, Fitzchivalry Farseer, and be sure that you see shrewd today. Goodbye, I said quietly. But he was already staring out the window again. And so High Summer found us all, Chade at his tablets, Verity at his window, Regal courting a princess for his brother, and I quietly killing for my king. The inland and coastal dukes took sides at the council tables, hissing and spitting at one another like cats over fish. And atop it all was shrewd, keeping each piece of web as taut as any spider and alert to the least thrumming of a line. The red ships struck at us, like ratfish on beef bait, tearing away bits of our folk and forging them, and the forged folk became a torment to the land, beggars or predators, or burden to their families. Folk feared to fish, to trade, or to farm the river-mouth plains by the sea, and yet the taxes must be raised to feed the soldiers and the watchers who seemed unable to defend the land despite their growing numbers. Shrewd had grudgingly released me from my service to Verity. My king had not called me in over a month, when one morning I was abruptly summoned to breakfast. It's a poor time to wed, Verity objected. I looked at the sallow, fleshless man who shared the king's breakfast table, and wondered if this was the bluff, hearty prince from my childhood. He had worsened so much in just a month, he toyed with a bit of bread, set it down again. The outdoors had gone from his cheeks and eyes. His hair was dull, his musculature slack, the whites of his eyes were yellowed. Burritch would have wormed him if he'd been a hound. Unasked, I said, I hunted with Leon two days ago. He took a rabbit for me. Verity turned to me, 
a ghost of his old smile playing on his face. You took my wolfhound for rabbits? He enjoyed it. He misses you, though. He brought me the rabbit, and I praised him, but it didn't seem to satisfy him. I couldn't tell him how the hound had looked at me. Not for you. As plain in his eyes as in his bearing. Verity picked up his glass. His hand quivered ever so slightly. I am glad he gets out with you, boy. It's better than... The wedding, shrewd cut in, will hearten the people. I am getting old, Verity, and the times are troubled. The people see no end to their troubles, and I do not dare promise them solutions we do not have. The out-islanders are right, Verity. We are not the warriors who once settled here. We have become a settled people, and a settled people can be threatened in ways that nomads and rovers have no care for. And we can be destroyed in those same ways. When settled people look for security, they look for continuity. Here I looked up sharply. Those were Chade's words. I'd bet my blood on it. Did that mean that this wedding was something Chade was helping to engineer? My interest became keener, and I wondered again why I had been summoned to this breakfast. It's a matter of reassuring our folk, Verity. You have not Regal's charm, nor the bearing that let chivalry convince everyone that he could take care of any matter. This is not to slight you. You have as much talent for the skill as I have ever seen in our line, and in many eras your soldierly skill and tactics would have been more important than chivalry's diplomacy. This sounded suspiciously like a rehearsed speech to me. I watched shrewd pause. He put cheese and preserves on some bread and bit into it thoughtfully. Veritas sat silent, watching his father. He seemed both attentive and bemused, like a man trying desperately to stay awake and be alert when all he can think of is putting his head down and closing his eyes. Well, Veritas certainly looked at least that tired. My brief experiences of the skill and the split concentration it demanded to resist its enticements, while bending it to one's will, made me marvel at Verity's ability to wield it every day. Shrewd glanced from Verity to me and back to his son's face. Putting it simply, you need to marry. More, you need to beget a child. It would put heart into the people. They would say, well, it cannot be as bad as all that if our prince does not fear to marry and have a child. Surely he would not be doing that if the whole kingdom were on the verge of crumbling. But you and I would still know better, wouldn't we, father? There was a hint of rust in Verity's voice, and a bitterness I had never heard there before. Verity. Shrewd began, but his son cut in. My king he said formally. You and I do know that we are on the brink of disaster, and now, right now, there can be no slackening of our vigilance. I have no time for courting and wooing, and even less time for the more subtle negotiations of finding a royal bride. While the weather is fine, the red ships will raid, and when it turns poor and the tempests blow their ships back to their own ports, then we must turn our minds and our energies to fortifying our coastlines and training crews to manage raiding ships of our own. 
That is what I want to discuss with you. Let us build our own fleet, not fat merchant ships to waddle about tempting raiders, but sleek warships, such as we once had, and our oldest shipwrights still know how to make. And let us take this battle to the out-islanders, yes, even through the storms of winter. We used to have such sailors and warriors among us. If we begin to build and train now, by next spring we could at least hold them away from our coast, and possibly by winter we could... It will take money, and money does not flow fastest from terrified men. To raise the funds we need, we need to have our merchants confident enough to continue trading. We have to have farmers unafraid to pasture their flocks on the coast meadows and hills. It all comes back, Verity, to your taking a wife. Verity, so animated when speaking of warships, leaned back in his chair. He seemed to sag in on himself, as if some piece of structure inside him had given way. I almost expected to see him collapse. As you will, my king, he said. But as he spoke he shook his head, denying the affirmation of his own words. I will do as you see wise. Such is the duty of a prince to his king and to his kingdom. But as a man, father, it is a bitter and empty thing, this taking of a woman selected by my younger brother. I will wager that having looked on Regal first, when she stands beside me, she will not see me as any great prize. Verity looked down at his hands, at the battle and work scars that now showed plainly against their paleness. I heard his name in his words when he said softly, Always I have been your second son, behind chivalry with his beauty, strength, and wisdom, and now behind Regal, with his cleverness and charm and airs. I know you think he would be a better king to follow after you than I. I do not always disagree with you. I was born second, and raised to be second. I had always believed my place would be behind the throne, not upon it, and when I thought that chivalry would follow you to that high seat, I did not mind it. He gave me great worth, my brother did. His confidence in me was like an honour. It made me a part of all he accomplished. To be the right hand of such a king were better than to be king of many a lesser land. I believed in him as he believed in me. But he is gone and I tell you nothing surprising when I say to you that there is no such bond between Regal and me. Perhaps there are too many years. Perhaps Chivalry and I were so close we left no room for a third, but I do not think he sought for a woman that can love me. Or one that— He chose you a queen! Shrewd interrupted harshly. I knew that this was not the first time this had been argued, and sensed that Shrewd— was most annoyed that I had been privy to these words. Regal chose a woman not for you or himself or any such silliness. He chose a woman to be queen of this country, of these six duchies. A woman who can bring to us the wealth and the men and the trade agreements that we need now if we are to survive these red ships. Soft hands and a sweet scent will not build your warships, Verity. You must set aside this jealousy of your brother. 
You cannot fend off the enemy if you do not have confidence in those who stand behind you. Exactly, Verity said quietly. He pushed his chair back. Where do you go? Shrewd demanded irritably. To my duties, Verity said shortly. Where else have I to go? For a moment, even Shrewd looked taken aback. But you've scarcely eaten. He faltered. The skill kills all other appetites. You know that. Yes. Shrewd paused. And I know too as you do, that when this happens a man is close to the edge. The appetite for the skill is one that devours a man, not one that nourishes him. They both seemed to have forgotten entirely about me. I made myself small and unobtrusive, nibbling on my biscuit as if I were a mouse in a corner. But what does the devouring of one man matter if it saves a kingdom? Verity did not bother to disguise the bitterness in his voice, and to me it was plain that it was not the skill alone that he spoke of. He pushed his plate away. After all, he added with ponderous sarcasm, It is not as if you do not have yet another son to step in and wear your crown. One unscarred by what the skill does to men, one free to wed where he will or will not. It is not Regal's fault that he is unskilled. He was a sickly child, too sickly for Galen to train, and who could have foreseen that two skilled princes would not be enough? Shrewd protested. He rose abruptly and paced the length of the chamber. He stood, leaning on the window sill and peering out over the sea below. I do what I can, son, he added in a lower voice. You think I do not care, that I do not see how you are being consumed? Verity sighed heavily. No, I know. It is the weariness of the skill that speaks, so not I. One of us, at least, must keep a clear head and try to grasp the whole of what is happening. For me there is nothing but the sensing out, and then the sorting, the trying to fix Navigator out from Oarsman, to send out the secret fears that the skill can magnify to find the faint heart in the crew and prey upon those first. When I sleep I dream them, and when I try to eat, they are what sticks in my throat. You know I have never relished this, father. It never seemed to me worthy of a warrior, to skulk and spy about in men's minds. Give me a sword, and I'll willingly explore their guts. I'd rather unman a man with a blade than turn the hounds of his own mind to nipping at his heels. I know. I know, Shrewd said gently but I did not think he really did. I, at least, did understand Verity's distaste for his task. I had to admit I shared it, and felt him somehow dirtied by it. And when he glanced at me, my face and eyes were empty of any judgment. Deeper within me was the sneaking guilt that I had failed to learn the skill, and was no use to my uncle at this time. I wondered if he looked at me and thought of drawing on my strength again, it was a frightening thought, but I steeled myself to the request, but he only smiled at me kindly, if absently, as if no such thought had ever crossed his mind, and as he rose and walked past my chair, he tousled my hair as if I were Leon, 
Take my dog out for me, even if it is only for rabbits. I hate to leave him in my rooms each day, but his poor dumb pleading was a distraction from what I must do. I nodded, surprised at what I felt emanating from him, a shadow of the same pain I had felt at being separated from my own dogs. Verity. He turned at Shrewd's call. Almost I forgot to tell you why I had called you here. It is, of course, the Mountain Princess, Ketkin. I think her name was. Ketrikin. I at least remember that much. A skinny little child the last time I saw her. So she is the one you have selected? Yes. For all the reasons we have already discussed, and a day has been set, ten days before our harvest feast. You will have to leave here during the first part of reap time in order to reach there in time. There will be a ceremony there before her own people, binding the two of you and sealing all the agreements, and a formal wedding later when you arrive back here with her. Regal sends word that you must— Verity had halted, and his face darkened with frustration. I cannot. You know I cannot. If I leave off my work here, while it is still reap time, there will be nothing to bring a bride back to. Always the out-islanders have been greediest and most reckless in the final month before the winter storms drive them back to their own wretched shore. Do you think it will be any different this year? Like as not, I would bring Ketrickin back here to find them feasting in our own buck-keep with your head on a pike, to greet me. King Shrewd looked angered, but kept his temper as he asked, Do you really think they could press us that greatly if you gave off your efforts for twenty days or so? I know it, Verity said wearily. I know it as surely as I know that I should be at my post right now, not arguing here with you. Father, tell them it must be put off. I'll go for her as soon as we've a good coat of snow on the ground, and a blessed gale lashing all ships into their ports. It cannot be, Shrewd said regretfully. They have beliefs of their own up in the mountains. A wedding made in winter yields a barren harvest. You must take her in the fall when the lands are yielding, or in late spring when they till their little mountain fields. I cannot. By the time spring comes to their mountains, it is fair weather here, with raiders on our door-sills. Surely they must understand that. Verity moved his head about like a restless horse on a short lead. He did not want to be here. Distasteful as he found his skill-work, it called to him. He wanted to go to it, wanted it in a way that had nothing to do with protecting his kingdom. I wondered if Shrewd knew that. I wondered if Verity did. To understand something is one thing, the king expounded. To insist they flaunt their traditions is another. Verity, this must be so. Done now. Shrewd rubbed his head, as if it pained him. We need this joining. We need her soldiers. We need her marriage gifts. We need her father at our back. It cannot wait. Could not you perhaps go in a closed litter, unhampered by managing a horse, and continue your skill-work as you travel? It might even do you good to get out and about a bit, to have a little fresh air and— No! 
Verity bellowed the word, and Shrewd turned where he stood, almost as if he were at bay against the window sill. Verity advanced to the table and pounded on it, showing a temper I had never suspected in him. No and no and no! I cannot do the work I must do to keep the raiders from our coast while being rocked and jolted in a horse litter. And no, I will not go to this bride you have chosen for me, to this woman I scarce recall in a litter like an invalid or a whittling. I will not have her see me so, nor would I have my men sniggering behind me saying, Oh, this is what brave Verity has come to, riding like a palsied old man, pandered off to some woman as if he were an out-islander whore. Where are your wits that you can think such stupid plans? You've been among the mountain folk. You know their ways. Think you a woman of theirs would accept a man who came to her in such a sickly way? Even their royals expose a child if it is born less than whole. You'd spoil your own plan and leave the six duchies to the raiders while you did it. Then, perhaps... Then perhaps there is a red ship right now, not so far that they cannot see Egg Island, and already the captain of it is discounting the dream of ill omen he had last night, and the navigator is correcting his course, wondering how he could have so mistaken the landmarks of our coastline. Already the work I did last night while you slept and Regal danced and drank with his courtiers is coming undone, while we stand here and yatter at one another. Father, arrange it. Arrange it any way you wish and can, so long as it does not involve me doing anything save the skill while fair weather plagues our coast. Verity had been moving as he spoke, and the slamming of the king's chamber door almost drowned out his final words. Shrewd stood and stared at the door for some moments. Then he passed a hand across his eyes, rubbing them but for weariness or tears or just a bit of dust I could not tell. He looked about the room, frowning when his eyes encountered me, as if I were a thing puzzlingly out of place. Then, as if recalling why I were there, he observed dryly, Well, that went well, didn't it? Still and all, a way must be found, and when Verity rides to claim his bride, you will go with him. If you wish, my king, I said quietly. I do. He cleared his throat, then turned to look out his window again. The princess has a single sibling, an older brother. He is not a healthy man. Oh, he was well and strong once. But on the ice fields he took an arrow through his chest, passed clean through him, so Regal was told and the wounds on his chest and back healed. But in winters he coughs blood, and in summer he cannot sit a horse nor drill his men for more than half the morning. Knowing the mountain folk, it is full surprising that he is their king-in-waiting. I thought quietly for a moment. Among the mountain folk the custom is the same as ours. Male or female, the offspring inherit by the order of their birth. Yes. That is so, Shrewd said quietly, and I knew that already he was thinking that seven duchies might be stronger than six. And Princess Ketrigan's father? I asked. 
How is his health? As hale and hearty as one could wish for a man of his years. I am sure he will reign long and well for at least another decade, keeping his kingdom whole and safe for his heir. Probably by then our troubles with the red ships will be long over. Verity will be free to turn his mind to other things. Probably. King Shrewd agreed quietly. His eyes finally met mine. When Verity goes to claim his bride, you will go with him, he said again. You understand what your duties will be? I trust to your discretion. I inclined my head to him. As you wish, my king. Nineteen. Journey. To speak of the mountain kingdom as a kingdom is to start out with a basic misunderstanding of the area and the folk who people it. It is equally inaccurate to refer to the region as Chiorda, although the Chiorda do make up the dominant folk there. Rather than one stretch of united countryside, the mountain kingdom consists of various hamlets clinging to the mountainsides, of small vales of arable land, of trading hamlets sprung up along the rough roads that lead to the passes, and clans of nomadic herders and hunters who range the inhospitable countryside in between. Such a diverse people are unlikely to unite, for their interests are often in conflict. Strangely, though, the only force more powerful than each group's independence and insular ways is the loyalty they bear to the king of the mountain folk. Traditions tell us that this line was begun by a prophet judge, a woman who was not only wise, but also a philosopher who founded a theory of ruling whose keystone is that the leader is the ultimate servant of the people and must be totally selfless in that regard. There was no definite time when the judge became the king, rather it was a gradual transition, as word of the fairness and wisdom of the Holy One at Jampe spread. As more and more folk sought counsel there, willing to be bound by the decision of the judge, it was only natural that the laws of that settlement came to be respected throughout the mountains, and that more and more folk adopted Jampe laws as their own. And so judges became kings, but, amazingly, retained their self-imposed decree of servitude and self-sacrifice for their people. The Jampe tradition is rife with tales of kings and queens who sacrificed themselves for their folk, in every conceivable way, from fending wild animals off shepherd children, to offering themselves as hostages in times of feud. Tales have been told to make the mountain folk out to be harsh, almost savage. In truth, the land they dwell in is uncompromising, and their laws mirror this condition. It is true that badly formed infants are exposed, or more commonly, drowned or drugged to death. The elderly often choose sequestering, a self-imposed exile where cold and starvation end all infirmities. A man who breaks his word may have his tongue notched, as well as having to surrender double the value of his original bargain. Such customs may seem quaintly barbaric to those in the more settled of the six duchies, but they are particularly suited to the world of the mountain kingdom. In the end, Verity had his way. There was no sweetness in the triumph for him, I am sure, for his own stubborn insistence was backed by a sudden increase in the frequency of the raids. 
In the space of a month, two villages were burned, and had a total of thirty-two inhabitants taken for forging. Nineteen of them apparently carried the now popular poison vials, and chose to commit suicide. A third town, a more populous one, was successfully defended not by the royal troops, but by a mercenary militia the townsfolk had organized and hired themselves. Many of the fighters, ironically, were immigrant out-islanders, using one of the few skills they had, and the mutterings against the king's apparent inactivity increased. It did little good to try to explain to them about Verity and the coterie's work. What the people needed and wanted were warships of their own defending the coastline. But ships take time to build, and the converted merchant ships that were already in the water were tubby, wallowing things compared to the sleek red ships that harassed us. Promises of warships by spring were small comfort to farmers and herders trying to protect this year's crops and flocks, and the landlocked duchies were becoming more and more vociferous about paying heavier taxes to build warships to protect a coastline they didn't share. For their part, the leaders of the coastal duchies sarcastically wondered how well the inland folk would do without their seaports and trading vessels to outlet their goods. During at least one high council meeting, there was a noisy altercation in which Duke Ram of Tilth suggested that it would be little loss to cede the near islands and Fur Point to the red ships, if that would slacken their raiding. And Duke Brondy of Beams retaliated by threatening to stop all trade traffic along the Bear River and see if Tilth found that as small a loss. King Shrewd managed to bring the council to adjournment before they came to blows, but not before the Pharaoh Duke had made it clear that he sided with Tilth. The lines of division were being made more sharp with each passing month and each allotment of taxes. Clearly, something was needed to rebuild the kingdom's unity, and Shrewd was convinced it was a royal marriage. So Regal danced his diplomatic steps. And it was arranged that the Princess Ketrikan would make her pledges to Regal in his brother's stead, with all her own folk to witness, and Verity's word would be given by his brother, with a second ceremony to follow, of course, at Buckkeep, with suitable representatives from Ketrikan's folk to witness it. And for the nonce, Regal remained in the Mountain Kingdom's capital at Jampe. His presence there created a regular flow of emissaries, gifts, and supplies between Buckkeep. And Jampe, seldom did a week pass without a cavalcade either leaving or arriving. It kept Buckkeep in a constant stir. It seemed to me an awkward and ungainly way to assemble a marriage. Each would be wed almost a month before glimpsing the other. But the political expedients were more important than the feelings of the principles, and the separate celebrations were planned. I had long since recovered from Verity tapping my strength. It was taking me longer to grasp completely what Galen's misting of my mind had done to me. I believe I would have confronted him, despite Verity's counsel, except that Galen had left Buckkeep. He had departed in company of a cavalcade bound for Jampe to ride with them as far as Pharaoh, where he had relatives he wished to visit. By the time he returned, I myself would be on my way to Jampe, so Galen remained out of my reach. Again, I had too much time on my hands. I still tended Leon, but he did not take more than an hour or two of my time each day. I had been able to discover nothing more about the attack on Burridge, 
Nor did Burritt show any signs of relenting on my ostracism. I had made one jaunt into Buckkeep Town, but when I chanced to wander by the chandlery, it was shuttered and silent. My inquiries at the shop next door brought me the information that the chandlery had been closed for ten days or more, and that, unless I wished to buy some leather harness, I could go elsewhere and stop bothering him. I thought of the young man I had last seen with Molly, and bitterly wished them no good of each other. For no other reason than that I was lonely, I decided to seek out the fool. Never before had I tried to initiate a meeting with him. He proved more elusive than I had ever imagined. After a few hours of randomly wandering the keep, hoping to encounter him, I made brave enough to go to his chamber. I had known for years where it was, but had never gone there before, and not simply because it was in an out-of-the-way part of the keep. The fool did not invite intimacy, except of the kind he chose to offer, and only when he chose to offer it. His chambers were a tower-top room. Fedrin had told me that it had once been a map-room, and had offered an unobstructed view of the land surrounding Buckkeep. But later additions to Buckkeep had blocked the views, and higher towers supplanted it. It had outlived its usefulness for anything, save chambers for a fool. I climbed to it that one day toward the beginning of harvest time. It was already a hot and sticky day. The tower was a closed one, save for arrow slits that did little more than illuminate the dust motes my feet set to dancing in the still air. At first, the darkness of the tower had seemed cooler than the stuffy day outside, but as I climbed, it seemed to get hotter and more close, so that by the time I reached the last landing, I felt as if there were no air left to breathe at all. I lifted a weary fist and pounded on the shut door. It's me, Fitz, I called, but the still hot air muffled my voice like a wet blanket smothering a flame. Shall I use that as an excuse? Shall I say I thought perhaps he could not hear me, and so I went in to see if he was there? Or shall I say I was so hot and thirsty that I entered to see if his chamber offered any hint of air or water? Why? Doesn't matter, I suppose. I put my hand to the door latch, and it lifted, and I went inside. Fool! I called, but I could feel he wasn't there. Not as I usually felt folks' presence or absence, but by the stillness that met me. Yet I stood in the door and gawked at a soul laid bare. Here was light and flowers and colours in profusion. There was a loom in the corner, and baskets of fine thin thread in bright, bright colours. The woven coverlet on the bed and the drapings on the open window were unlike anything I had ever seen, woven in geometric patterns that somehow suggested fields of flowers beneath a blue sky. A wide pottery bowl held floating flowers, and a slim silver fingerling swam about the stems and above the bright pebbles that floored it. I tried to imagine the colourless, cynical fool in the midst of all this colour and art. I took a step farther into the room and saw something that moved my heart aside in my chest. A baby. That was what I took it for at first, and without thinking, I took the next two steps and knelt beside the basket that cradled it. But it was not a living child, but a doll, 
crafted with such incredible art that almost I expected to see the small chest move with breath. I reached a hand to the pale, delicate face, but dared not touch it. The curve of the brow, the closed eyelids, the faint rose that suffused the tiny cheeks, even the small hand that rested atop the coverlets, were more perfect than I supposed a made thing could be. Of what delicate clay it had been crafted, I could not guess, nor what hand had inked the tiny eyelashes that curled on the infant's cheeks. A tiny coverlet was embroidered all over in pansies, and the pillow was of satin. I don't know how long I knelt there, as silent as if it were truly a sleeping babe. But eventually I rose, and backed out of the fool's room, and then drew the door silently closed behind me. I went slowly down the myriad steps, torn between dread that I might encounter the fool coming up, and burdened with the knowledge that I had discovered one denizen of the keep who was at least as alone as I was. Chade summoned me that night, but when I went to him, he seemed to have no more purpose in calling me than to see me. We sat almost silently before the black hearth, and I thought he looked older than he ever had. As Verity was devoured, so Chade was consumed. His bony hands appeared almost desiccated, and the whites of his eyes were webbed with red. He needed to sleep, but instead had chosen to call me. Yet he sat, still and silent, scarce nibbling at the food he had placed before us. At length, I decided to help him. Are you afraid I won't be able to do it? I asked him softly. Do what? He asked absently. Kill the mountain prince, Rorisk. Chade turned to look at me full face. The silence held for a long moment. You didn't know King Shrewd had given me this. I faltered. Slowly he turned back to the empty hearth and studied it, as carefully as if there were flames to read. I am only the toolmaker, he said at last, quietly. Another man uses what I make. Do you think this is a bad task, wrong? I took a breath. From what I've been told, he has not that much longer to live anyway. It might almost be a mercy if death were to come quietly in the night instead of... Boy, Chade remarked quietly. Never pretend we are anything but what we are. Assassins. Not merciful agents of a wise king. Political assassins dealing death for the furtherance of our monarchy. That is what we are. It was my turn to study the ghosts of the flames. You are making this very hard for me. Harder than it already was. Why? Why did you make me what I am, if you then try to weaken my resolve? My question died away, half informed. I think... Never mind. Maybe it is a kind of jealousy in me, my boy. I wonder, I suppose, why Shrewd uses you instead of me. Maybe I fear I have outlived my usefulness to him. Maybe now that I know you, I wish I had never set out to make you what... And it was Chade's turn to fall silent, his thoughts going where his words could not follow him. We sat, contemplating my assignment. This was not a serving of a king's justice. 
This was not a death sentence for a crime. This was a simple removal of a man who was an obstacle to greater power. I sat still until I began to wonder if I would do it. Then I lifted my eyes to a silver fruit knife driven deep into Chade's mantelpiece. And I thought I knew the answer. Verity has made complaint. On your behalf, Chade said suddenly. Complaint? I asked weakly. To shrewd. First, that Galen had mistreated you and cheated you. This complaint he made formally, saying that he had deprived the kingdom of your skill at a time when it would have been most useful. He suggested to Shrewd informally that he settle it with Galen before you took matters into your own hands. Looking at Chade's face, I could see that the full content of my discussion with Verity had been revealed to him. I was not sure how I felt about that. I would not do that. Take my own revenge on Galen, not after Verity asked me not to. Chade gave me a look of quiet approval. So I told Shrewd. But he said to me that I must say to you that he will settle this. This time the king works his own justice. You must wait and be satisfied. What will he do? That I do not know. I do not think Shrewd himself knows yet. The man must be rebuked. But we must keep in mind that if other coteries are to be trained, Galen must not feel too badly. Chade cleared his throat and said more quietly, and Verity made another complaint to the king as well. He accused Shrewd and me quite bluntly of being willing to sacrifice you for the sake of the kingdom. This I knew suddenly was why Chade had called me tonight. I was silent. Chade spoke more slowly. Shrewd claimed he had not even considered it. For my part, I had no idea such a thing was possible. He sighed again as if parting with these words cost him. Shrewd is my king, my boy. His first concern must always be for his kingdom. The silence between us stretched long. You are saying he would sacrifice me. Without a qualm, he did not take his eyes from the fireplace. You, me, even Verity, if he thought it necessary for the survival of the kingdom. Then he did turn to look at me. Never forget that, he said. The night before the wedding caravan was to leave Buck Keep, Lacey came tapping on my door. It was late, and when she said Patience wished to see me, I foolishly asked, Now? Well, you leave tomorrow, Lacey pointed out, and I obediently followed her as if that made sense. I found Patience sitting up in a cushioned chair, an extravagantly embroidered robe on over her nightclothes. Her hair was down about her shoulders, and as I seated myself where she indicated, Lacey resumed the brushing of it. I have been waiting for you to come to apologize to me. Patience observed. I immediately opened my mouth to do so, but she irritably waved me to silence. 
But in discussing it with Lacey tonight, I found I had already forgiven you. Boys, I decided, simply have a given amount of rudeness they must express. I decided you meant nothing by it, hence you do not need to apologize. But I am sorry, I protested. I just couldn't decide how to say... It's too late to apologize now. I've forgiven you, she said briskly. Besides, there isn't time. I'm sure you should be asleep by now, but as this is your first real venture into court life, I wanted to give you something before you left. I opened my mouth, then shut it again. If she wanted to consider this my first real venture into court life, I wouldn't argue with her. Sit here, she said imperiously and pointed to a spot by her feet. I went and sat, obediently. For the first time I noticed a small box in her lap. It was of dark wood, and a stag was carved into the lid in bas-relief. As she opened it, I caught a whiff of the aromatic wood. She took out an ear-stud and held it up to my ear. Too small, she muttered. What is the sense of wearing jewellery if no one else can see it? She held up and discarded several others with similar comments. Finally, she held up one that was like a silver bit of net with a blue stone caught in it. She made a face over it, then nodded reluctantly. That man has taste. Whatever else he lacks, he has taste. She held it up to my ear again and, with absolutely no warning, thrust the pin of it through my earlobe. I yelped and clapped a hand over my ear, but she slapped it away. Don't be such a baby. It only stings for a minute. There was a sort of clasp that held it behind, and she ruthlessly bent my ear and her fingers to fasten it. There. That quite suits him, don't you think, Lacey? Quite. Lacey agreed, over her eternal tatting. Patience dismissed me with a gesture. As I rose to go, she said, Remember this, Fitz. Whether you can skill or not, whether you wear his name or not, you are chivalry's son. See that you behave with honour. Now go and get some sleep. With this ear? I asked showing her blood on my fingertips. I hadn't thought. I'm sorry, she began, but I interrupted her. Too late to apologize. I've already forgiven you. And thank you. Lacey was still giggling as I left. I arose early the next morning to take my place at the wedding cavalcade. Rich gifts must be taken as a token of the new bond between the families. There were gifts for the Princess Ketrickan herself, a fine-blooded mare, jewellery, fabric for garments, servants, and rare perfumes. And there were the gifts to her family and people, horses and hawks, and worked gold for her father and brother, of course, but the more important gifts were the ones offered to her kingdom, for in keeping with the Jampe traditions, she was of her people more than she was of her family. And so there was breeding stock, cattle, sheep, horses and fowl, and powerful yew bows such as the mountain folk did not have, and metal-working tools of good forge iron, 
and other gifts judged likely to improve the lot of the mountain folk. And there was knowledge, in the form of several of Fedrin's best illustrated herbals, and several tablets of cures, and a scroll on hawking that was a careful copy of one created by Hawker himself. These last, ostensibly, were my purpose in accompanying the caravan. They were given into my keeping, along with a generous supply of the herbs and roots mentioned in the herbal, and with seed for growing those that did not keep well. This was not a trivial gift, and I took my responsibility for seeing it well delivered as seriously as I took my other mission. All was well wrapped and then placed within a carved cedar chest. I was checking their wrappings for a final time before taking the chest down to the courtyard, when I heard the fool behind me. I brought you this. I turned to find him standing just inside the door of my room. I hadn't even heard the door open. He was proffering a leather drawstring bag. What is it? I asked, and tried not to let him hear either the flowers or the doll in my voice. Sea purge! I raised my eyebrows. A cathartic? As a marriage gift? I suppose some would find it appropriate, but the herbs I am taking can be planted and grown in the mountains. I do not think... It is not a wedding gift. It is for you. I accepted the pouch with mixed feelings. It was an exceptionally powerful purge. Thank you for thinking of me, but I am not usually prone to travellers' ailments, and... You are not usually, when you travel, in danger of being poisoned. Is there something you'd like to tell me? I tried to make my tone light and bantering. I missed the fool's usual wry faces and mockeries from his conversation. Only that you'd be wise to eat lightly, or not at all, of any food that you do not prepare yourself. At all the feasts and festivities that will be there? No, only the ones you wish to survive. He turned to go. I'm sorry, I said hastily. I didn't mean to intrude. I was looking for you, and I was so hot, and the door wasn't latched, so I went in. I didn't mean to pry. His back was to me, and he didn't turn around as he asked. And did you find it amusing? I... I could not think of anything to say, of any way to assure him that what I had seen there would stay only within my own mind. He took two steps and was closing the door. I blurted. It made me wish there were a place as much me as that place is you, a place I would keep as secret. The door halted a handbreadth short of closed. Take some advice and you may survive this trip. When considering a man's motives, remember you must not measure his wheat with your bushel. He may not be using the same standard at all. And the door closed, and the fool was gone. But his last words had been cryptic and frustrating enough that I thought perhaps he had forgotten my trespass. I stuffed the sea purge into my jerkin, not wanting it, but afraid to leave it now. I glanced about my room, but as always, it was a bare and practical place. Mistress Hasty had seen to my packing, not trusting me with my new garments. I had noticed that the barred buck on my crest had been replaced 
with a buck with his antlers lowered to charge. Verity ordered it, was all she said when I asked about it. I like it better than the barred buck myself, don't you? I suppose, I replied, and that had been the end of it. A name and a crest. I nodded to myself, shouldered my chest of herbs and scrolls, and went down to join the caravan. As I was going down the steps, I encountered Verity coming up. At first I scarcely knew him, for he was ascending like a crabbed old man. I stepped out of his way to let him pass, and then knew him as he glanced at me. It is a strange thing to see a once familiar man like that, encountered as a stranger. I marked how his clothes hung on him now, and the bushy dark hair I remembered had a peppering of grey. He smiled absently at me, and then, as if it had suddenly occurred to him, he stopped me. You're leaving for the mountain kingdom? For the wedding ceremony? Yes. Do me a favour, boy. Of course, I said, taken aback by the rust in his voice. Speak well of me to her. Truthfully, mind you, I'm not asking for lies, but speak well of me. I've always thought that you thought well of me. I do, I said to his retreating back. I do, sir. But he didn't turn or make a reply and I felt much as I had when the fool left me. The courtyard was a milling of folk and animals. There were no carts this time, the roads into the mountains were notoriously bad, and it had been decided that pack animals would have to suffice for the sake of swiftness. It would not do for the royal entourage to be late for the wedding. It was bad enough that the groom was not attending. The flocks and herds had been sent on days before. It was expected that our trip would take two weeks, and three had been allowed for it. I saw to fastening the cedar chest onto a pack animal, and then stood beside Sooty and waited. Even in the cobbled courtyard, dust stirred thick in the hot summer air. Despite all the careful planning that had gone into it, the caravan seemed chaotic. I glimpsed Severin's, Regal's favourite valet. Regal had sent him back to Buckkeep a month ago, with specific instructions about certain garments he wished created. Severin's was following Hans, dithering and expostulating about something, and whatever it was, Hans was not looking patient about it. When Mistress Hasty had been giving me final instructions on the care of my new garments, she had divulged that Severin's was taking so many new garments, hats, and accoutrements for Regal, that he had been allotted three pack animals to carry them. I imagine that caring for the three animals had fallen to hands, for Severin's was an excellent valet, but timid around larger animals. Raud, Regal's ready man, hulked after both of them, looking ill-tempered and impatient. On one wide shoulder he carried yet another trunk, and perhaps the loading of this additional item was what was fretting Severin's. I soon lost sight of them in the crowd. I was surprised to discover Burridge checking the lead lines on the breeding horses and the princess's gift mare. Surely, whoever was in charge of them could do that, I thought. And then, as I saw him mount, I realized that he too would be part of this procession. I looked about to see who was accompanying him, but saw none of the stable boys I knew save hands. Cobb was already in Jampe with Regal, 
so Burrich had taken this on himself. I was not surprised. August was there, astride a fine grey mare, waiting with an impassivity that was almost inhuman. Already his time in the coterie had changed him. Once he had been a chubby youth, quiet but pleasant. He had the same black bushy hair as Verity, and I had heard it said that he resembled his cousin as a boy. I reflected that, as his skill duties increased, he would probably resemble Verity even more. He would be present at the wedding as a sort of window for Verity, as Regal uttered the vows on his brother's behalf. Regal's voice, August's eyes, I mused to myself. What did I go as? His poniard? I mounted Sooty, as much to be up and away from the folk exchanging goodbyes and last-minute instructions, as for any other reason. I wished to Eda we could be away and on the road. It seemed to take forever for the straggling line to form, and for the last-minute tying and strapping of bundles to be accomplished. And then, almost abruptly, the standards were lifted, a horn was blown, and the line of horses, laden pack-animals and folk, began to move. I looked up once to see that Verity had actually come out to stand atop the tower and watch us depart. I waved up at him, but doubted that he knew me amidst so many. And then we were out of the gates and winding up the hilly path that led away from Buckkeep and to the west. Our path would lead us up the banks of the Buck River, which we would ford at its wide shallows near where the borders of Buck and Faro Duchies touched. From there we would journey across Faro's wide plains in baking heat I had never encountered before, until we reached Blue Lake. From Blue Lake we would follow a river named simply Cold, whose origins were in the Mountain Kingdom. From the Cold Ford the trading road began, and that led between the mountains and through their shallows and up, ever up, to Storm Pass, and thence to the thick green forests of the Rain Wilds. But we would not go so far as that, but would stop at Jampe, which was as close to the city as the mountain kingdom possessed. In some ways it was an unremarkable journey, if one discounts all that inevitably goes with such journeys. After the first three days or so, things settled into a remarkably monotonous routine, varied only by the different countryside we passed. Every little village or hamlet along our road turned out to greet us and delay us with official best wishes and felicitations for the Crown Prince's wedding festivities. But after we reached the wide plains of Faro, such hamlets were few and far between. Faro's rich farms and trading cities were far to the north of our path, along the Vin River. We travelled Faro's plains where people were mostly nomadic herders, creating towns only in the winter months when they settle along the trade routes for what they called the green season. We passed herds of sheep or goats or horses, or more rarely the dangerous rangy swine they called haragars. But our contact with the people of that region was usually limited to the sight of their conical tents in the distance, or some herder standing tall in his saddle and holding aloft his crook in greeting. Hans and I became reacquainted. We would share food and a small cook-fire in the evenings, 
and he would regale me with tales of Severin's nattering worries of dust getting into silk robes, or bugs getting into fur collars, and velvet getting chafed to pieces during the long trek. Grimmer were his complaints about Roud. I myself had no fond memories of the man, and Hans found him an oppressive travelling companion, for he seemed to constantly suspect Hans of trying to steal from the packs of Regal's belongings. One evening, Roud even found his way to our fire, where he laboriously delivered a vague and indirect warning against any who might conspire to steal from his master. But other than such unpleasantness, our evenings were peaceful. The fair weather held, and if we sweated by day, it was mild by night. I slept atop my blanket and seldom bothered with any other shelter. Each night I checked over the contents of my trunk and did my best to keep the roots from becoming completely desiccated, and to keep the shifting from putting wear on the scrolls and tablets. There was one night when I awoke to a loud whinnying from Sooty, and thought that the cedar chest had been moved slightly from where I had placed it. But a brief check of its contents proved all was in order, and when I mentioned it to Hans, he merely asked if I was catching Roud's disease. The hamlets and herds we passed frequently provided us with fresh foods, and were most generous in their allocation of it, so we had little hardship on the journey. Open water was not as plentiful as we could have wished as we crossed Farrow, but each day we found some spring or dusty well to water at, so even that was not as bad as it might have been. I saw very little of Burridge. He arose earlier than the rest of us, and preceded the main caravan, that his charges might have the best grazing and the cleanest water. I knew he would want his horses in prime condition when they arrived at Jampe. August, too, was almost invisible. While he was technically in charge of our expedition, he left the running of it to the captain of his honour guard. I could not decide if he did this out of wisdom or laziness. In any event, he kept mostly to himself, although he did allow Severins to tend him and share his tent and meals. For me, it was almost a return to a sort of childhood. My responsibilities were very limited. Hans was a genial companion, and it took very little encouragement to have him telling from his vast store of tales and gossip. I often went for almost the whole day before I would recall that, at the end of this journey, I would kill a prince. Such thoughts usually came on me when I awoke in the dark part of the night. Pharaoh's sky seemed to be much thicker with stars than the night over Buck Keep, and I would stare up at them and mentally rehearse ways to put an end to Rorisk. There was another chest, a tiny one, packed carefully within the bag that held my clothing and personal items. I had packed it with much thought and anxiety for this assignment must be carried out perfectly, it must be done cleanly, with not even the tiniest suspicion raised, and timing was critical. The prince must not die while we were at Jampe. Nothing must cast the slightest shadow upon the nuptials, nor must he die before the ceremonies were observed at Buckkeep and the wedding safely consummated, for that might be seen as an ill omen for the couple. It would not be an easy death to arrange. Sometimes I wondered why it had been entrusted to me instead of to Chade. Was it a test of some sort, one that, if I failed, would see me put to death? 
Was Chade too old for this challenge, or too valuable to be risked for this? Could he simply not be spared from tending Verity's health? And when I reined my mind away from these questions, I was left wondering whether to use a powder that would irritate Rurisk's damaged lungs, so he might cough himself to death. Perhaps I might treat his pillows and bedding with it. Should I offer him a pain remedy, one that would slowly addict him and lure him into a sleeping death? I had a blood-thinning tonic. If his lungs were chronically bleeding already, it might be enough to send him on his way. I had one poison, swift and deadly and tasteless as water. If I could devise a way to be sure he would encounter it at a safely distant time. None of these were thoughts conducive to sleep, and yet the fresh air and the exercise of riding all day were usually sufficient to counter them, and I often awoke, eager for the next day of travel. When we finally sighted Blue Lake, it was like a miracle in the distance. It had been years since I had been so far from the sea for so long, and I was surprised how welcome the sight of water was to me. Every animal in our baggage train filled my thoughts with the clean scent of water. The country became greener and more forgiving as we approached the great lake, and we were hard put to keep the horses from overgrazing themselves at night. Hordes of sailboats plied their merchant trade on Blue Lake, and their sails were coloured so as to tell not only what they sold, but what family they sailed for. The settlements along Blue Lake were built out on pilings into the water. We were well greeted there and feasted with freshwater fish, which tasted odd to my sea-trained tongue. I felt myself quite the traveller, and Hans and I were nearly overwhelmed with our opinions of ourselves when some green-eyed girls from a grain-trading family came giggling to our fireside one night. They had brought with them small, brightly coloured drums, each toned differently, and they played and sang for us until their mothers came scolding to find them and lead them home. It was a heady experience, and I did not think of Prince Rurisk at all that night. West and north we travelled now, ferried across Blue Lake on some flat-bottomed barges I trusted not at all. On the far side, we found ourselves suddenly in forest lands, and the hot days of Pharaoh became a fond memory. Our path led us through immense stands of cedar, pricked here and there with groves of white paper birch, and seasoned in burned areas with alder and willow. Our horses' hooves thudded on the black earth of the forest trail, and the sweet smells of the autumn were all around us. We saw unfamiliar birds, and once, I glimpsed a great stag of a colour and kind I had never seen before, or since. Night grazing for the horses was not good, and we were glad of the grain we had brought from the lake people. We lit fires at night, and Hans and I shared a tent. Our way led steadily uphill now. We wound our way between the steepest slopes, but we were unmistakably making our way up into the mountains. One afternoon we met with a deputation from Jampe, sent to greet us and guide us on our way. After that we seemed to travel faster, and every evening we were entertained with musicians, poets, and jugglers, and feasted with their delicacies. Every effort was made to welcome us and to honour us, but I found them passing strange and almost frightening in their differences. 
Often, I was forced to remind myself of what both Burrich and Chade had taught me about the courtesies, while poor hands withdrew almost totally from these new companions. Physically, most of them were Chiorda, and were as I expected them to be, a tall, pale people, light of hair and eye, and some with hair as red as a fox. They were a brawny people, the women as well as the men, all seemed to carry a bow or a sling, and they were obviously more comfortable afoot than on horseback. They dressed in wool and leather, and even the humblest wore fine furs, as if they were no more than homespun. They strode alongside us, mounted as we were, and seemed to have no difficulty keeping up with the horses all day. They sang as they walked, long songs in an ancient tongue that sounded almost mournful, but were interspersed with shouts of victory or delight. I was later to learn they were singing us their history, that we might know better what kind of a people our prince was joining us to. I gathered that they were, for the most part, minstrels and poets. The hospitable ones, as their language translated it, traditionally sent to greet guests and to make them glad they had come, even before they arrived. As the next two days passed, our trail widened, for other paths and roads fed into it the closer we came to Jampe. It became a broad tradeway, sometimes paved with a crushed white stone. And the closer we came to Jampe, the greater our procession became, for we were joined by contingents from villages and tribes pouring in from the outer reaches of the mountain kingdom to see their princess pledge herself to the powerful prince from the lowlands. Soon, with dogs and horses and some sort of goat they used as pack-beasts, with wains of gifts and folk of every walk and degree trailing in families and knots behind us, we came to Jampe. 20. Jampe. And so, let them come, the people of whom I am, and when they reach the city, let them always be able to say, This is our city and our home, for however long we wish to stay. Let there always be spaces left. Let, words obscured, of the herds and flocks. Then there will be no strangers in Jampe, but only neighbors and friends, coming and going as they will. And the will of the sacrifice was observed in this, as in all things. So I read years later in a fragment from a Chiorda holy tablet, and so finally came to understand Jampe. But that first time as we rode up the hills toward Jampe, I was both disappointed and awed at what I saw. The temples, palaces, and public buildings reminded me of the immense closed blossoms of tulips, both in color and shape. The shape they owe to the once traditional stretched-hide shelters of the nomads who founded the city, the colors purely to the mountain folk's love of color in everything. Every building had been recently restained in preparation for our coming and the princess's nuptials, and thus they were almost garishly bright. Shades of purple seemed to dominate, set off by yellows, but every color was represented. It is best compared, perhaps, to chancing upon a patch of crocus pushing up through snow and black earth, 
for the bare, black rock of the mountains and the dark evergreens made the bright colors of the buildings even more impressive. Additionally, the city itself is built on an area fully as steep as Buckkeep Town, so that when one beholds it from below, the color and lines of it are presented in layers, like an artful arrangement of flowers in a basket. But as we drew closer, we were able to see that between and among the great buildings were tents and temporary huts and tiny shelters of every kind. For at Jampe, only the public buildings and royal houses are permanent. All else is the ebb and flow of folk coming to visit their capital city to ask judgment of the sacrifice, as they call the king or queen who rules there, or to visit the repositories of their treasures and knowledge, or simply to trade and visit with other nomads. Tribes come and go, tents are pitched and inhabited for a month or two, and then one morning all is bare-swept earth where they were until another group moves in to claim the spot. Yet it is not a disorderly place, for the streets are well defined with stone stairs set into the steeper places. Wells and bathhouses and steams are located at intervals throughout the city, and the strictest rules are observed about garbage and offal. It is also a green city, for the outskirts of it are pastures, for those who bring their herds and horses with them, with tenting areas defined by the shade trees and wells there. Within the city are stretches of garden, flowers and sculpted trees, more artfully tended than anything I had ever seen in Buckkeep. The visiting folk leave their creations among these gardens, and they may take the form of stone sculptures or carvings of wood, or brightly painted pottery creatures. In a way, it put me in mind of the fool's room, for in both places were colour and shape set out simply for the pleasure of the eye. Our guides halted us at a pasture outside of the city and indicated it had been set aside for us. After a bit of time, it became obvious that they expected we would leave our horses and mules here and proceed on foot. August, who was the nominal head of our caravan, did not handle this very diplomatically. I winced as he almost angrily explained that we had brought with us much more than we could be expected to carry into the city, and that many there were too weary from travelling to relish the ideal of the uphill walk. I bit my lip and forced myself to stand quietly, to witness the polite confusion of our hosts. Surely Regal had known of these customs. Why had he not warned us of them, so we would not begin our visit by appearing boorish and unaccommodating? But the hospitable folk tending to us swiftly adapted to our strange ways. They bid us rest and begged us to be patient with them. For a time we all stood about, vainly trying to appear comfortable. Roud and Severins joined Hans and me. Hans had a slosh or two of wine left in his skin, and this he shared, while Roud grudgingly reciprocated with some smoked meat in strips. We talked but I confess I paid little attention. I wished I had the courage to go to August and entreat him to be more adaptable to the ways of this people. We were their guests, and it was already bad enough that the groom had not come in person to carry off his bride. I watched from a distance as August consulted with several elder lords who had come with us, but from the motions of their hands and heads I deduced that they were only agreeing with him. Moments later a stream of sturdy, chiorda youths and maidens 
appeared on the road above us. Bearers had been summoned to help carry our goods into the city, and from somewhere bright tents were conjured for those servants who would stay here to tend the horses and mules. I much regretted to find that Hans would be one of those left behind. I entrusted Sooty to him. Then I shouldered the cedar herb chest and slung my personal bag from my other shoulder. As I joined the procession of those walking into the city, I smelled meat sizzling and tubers cooking, and saw our hosts setting up an open-sided pavilion and assembling tables within it. Hans, I decided, would not fare poorly, and almost I wished I had nothing more to do than tend the animals and explore this bright city. We had not gone far up the winding street, ascending into the city, before we were met by a flock of litters carried by tall Chiorda women. We were earnestly invited to mount into these litters and be carried into the city, and many apologies were made that we had been wearied by our trip. August, Severins, the older lords and most of the ladies of our party seemed only too happy to take advantage of this offer. But for me, it was a humiliation to be carried into the city. But it would have been even ruder to turn down their polite insistence, and so I surrendered my chest to a boy obviously younger than myself and mounted into a litter borne by women old enough to be my grandmother. I blushed to see how curiously the folk on the streets regarded us, and how they stopped to talk quickly together as we passed. I saw few other litters, and they were inhabited by those obviously old and infirm. I set my teeth and tried not to think what Verity would have felt about this display of ignorance. I tried to look out pleasantly on those we passed, and to let my delight in their gardens and graceful buildings show on my face. I must have succeeded in this, for presently my litter began to move more slowly, to allow me more time to see things, and the women to point to anything they thought I might have missed noticing. They spoke to me in Chiorda, and were delighted to find I had a crude understanding of their language. Chade had taught me the little he knew, but he had not prepared me for how musical the language was, and it soon became apparent to me that the pitch of the word was as important as the pronunciation. Fortunately, I had a quick ear for languages, so I blundered manfully into conversation with my bearers, resolved that by the time I spoke to my betters in the palace, I would no longer sound quite so much an outland fool. One woman undertook to give me a commentary on all she passed. Jonqui, her name was, and when I told her mine was Fitz Chivalry, she muttered it to herself several times, as if to fix it in her mind. With great difficulty, I persuaded my bearers to pause once and let me alight to examine a particular garden. It was not the bright flowers that attracted me, but what appeared to be a sort of willow that was growing in spirals and curls rather than the straight willow I was accustomed to. I ran my fingers along the supple bark of one limb and felt sure I could persuade a cutting to sprout, but dared not take a piece of it, lest it be construed as rude. One old woman stooped down beside me, grinned, and then ran her hand across the tops of a low-growing, tiny-leaved bed of herbs. The fragrance that arose from the stirred leaves was astounding, and she laughed aloud at the delight on my face. I would have liked to linger longer, 
but my bearers emphatically insisted we must hurry to catch up with the others before they reached the palace. I gathered there was to be an official welcoming, one I must not miss. Our procession wound up a terraced street even higher until our litters were set down outside a palace that was a cluster of the bright, bud-like structures. The main buildings were purple tipped with white, putting me in mind of the roadside lupin and beech pea flowers of Buck Keep. I stood beside my litter, staring at the palace, but when I turned to my bearers to indicate my pleasure in it, they were gone. They reappeared moments later, robed in saffron and azure, peach and rose, as did the other bearers, and walked among us, offering us basins of scented water and soft cloths to wash the dust and weariness from our faces and necks. Boys and young men in belted blue tunics brought a berry wine and tiny honey cakes. When every guest was washed and greeted with wine and honey, we then were bid to follow them into the palace. The interior of the palace was as foreign to me as the rest of Jampe. A great central pillar supported the main structure, and closer examination showed it to be the immense trunk of a tree, with the swells of its roots still obvious beneath the paving stones around its base. The supports of the gracefully curving walls were likewise trees, and days later I was to find that the growing of the palace had taken almost one hundred years. A central tree had been selected, the area cleared, and then the circle of supporting trees, planted and tended, and shaped during their growing by ropes and pruning, so that they all bowed toward the center tree. At some point in time, all other branches had been lopped away, and the treetops interwoven to form a crown. Then the walls had been created, first with a layer of finely woven fabric that was then varnished to hardness, and then overlaid with lapping after lapping of sturdy cloth made from bark. The bark cloth was daubed over with a peculiar local clay, and then coated with a bright layer of resinous paint. I never did discover if every building in the city had been created in this laborious fashion, but the growing of the palace had enabled its creators to give it a living grace that stone could never mimic. The immense interior was open, not unlike the great hall at Buck Keep, with a similar number of hearths. There were tables set out, and areas obviously for cooking and weaving and spinning and preserving, and all the other necessities of a great household. The private chambers seemed to be no more than curtained alcoves, or rooms like small tents set against the exterior wall. There were also some elevated chambers, reached by a network of open wooden stairs, reminding me of tents pitched on stilt platforms. The supporting legs of these chambers were natural tree trunks. My heart sank as I realized how little privacy there would be for any quiet work I needed to do. I was shown quickly to a tent chamber. Inside I found my cedar chest and clothing bag awaiting me, as well as more warm and scented wash water and a dish of fruit. I changed quickly from my dusty traveling clothes into an embroidered robe with slitted sleeves and matching green leggings that Mistress Hasty had decreed appropriate. I wondered once more at the threatening buck embroidered on it, then set it out of my mind. Perhaps Verity had thought this changed crest less humiliating 
than the one that so clearly proclaimed my illegitimacy. In any case, it would serve. I heard chimes and small drums from the great central room and left my chamber hurriedly to find out what was afoot. On a dais set before the great trunk and decorated with flowers and evergreen swags, August and Regal stood before an old man flanked by two servants in plain white robes. A crowd had gathered in a great circle around the dais, and I quickly joined them. One of my litter-bearers, now robed in rose drapings and crowned with a twining of ivy, soon appeared at my side. She smiled down at me. What is happening? I made bold to ask. Our sacrifice, uh, uh, you say. King Eod will welcome you, and he will show you to all his daughter to be your sacrifice. <clears throat> a queen, and his son who will rule for her here. She stumbled through this explanation with many a pause and many encouraging nods from me. With mutual difficulty, she explained that the woman standing beside King Eod was her niece, and I awkwardly managed a compliment to the effect that she looked both healthy and strong. At the moment it seemed the kindest thing I could find to say of the impressive woman standing so protectively by her king. She had an immense mass of the yellow hair that I was becoming accustomed to in Jampe, with some of it braided up and coiled about her head, and some flowing loose down her back. Her face was grave, her bare arms muscular. The man on the other side of King Eod was older, but still as like her as a twin, save that his hair was cut severely short at his collar. He had the same jade eyes, straight nose, and solemn mouth. When I managed to ask the old woman if he too was a relative, she smiled as if I must be a bit dim, and replied that of course he was her nephew. She shushed me then, as if I were but a child, for King Eod was speaking. He spoke slowly and carefully, but even so, I was glad of my conversations with my litter-bearers, for I was able to make out most of his speech. He greeted us formally, including Regal, for he said that previously he had greeted him only as the emissary of King Shrewd, and now he greeted him as Prince Verity's symbol of his presence. August was included in this greeting, and both were presented with several gifts, jeweled daggers, a precious fragrant oil, and rich fur stoles. When the stoles were placed about their shoulders, I thought with chagrin that both now looked more like decorations than princes, for in contrast to the simple garb of King Eod and his attendants, Regal and August were decked in circlets and rings, and their garments were of opulently rich fabrics and cut with no regard for either thrift or service. To me, they both appeared foppish and vain, but I hoped that our hosts would merely think their outlandish appearance was part of our foreign customs. And then, to my personal chagrin, the king summoned forward his male attendant and introduced him to our assemblage as Prince Rurisk. The woman was, of course, Princess Ketrican, and Verity's betrothed. And finally, I realized that those who had been our litter-bearers and greeted us with cakes and wine were not the servants, but the women of the royal household, 
the grandmothers, aunts, and cousins of Verity's betrothed, all following the Jampe tradition of serving their people. I quailed to think I had spoken to them so familiarly and casually, and again mentally cursed Regal that he had not foreseen to send us more word of their customs rather than the long list of clothing and jewellery he wished brought for himself. The elderly woman beside me then was the king's own sister. I thought she must have sensed my confusion, for she patted my shoulder benignly and smiled at my blushes as I attempted to stutter an apology. For you have done nothing to shame yourself, she informed me, and then bade me call her not my lady, but Jonqui. I watched as August presented to the princess the jewellery Verity had selected to send her. There was a net of finely woven silver chain set with red gems to drape her hair, and a silver collar set with larger red stones. There was a silver hoop wrought like a vine full of jingling keys that August explained were her household keys, for when she joined him at Buckkeep, and eight plain silver rings for her hands. She stood still, as Regal himself decked her. I thought to myself, the silver with red stones would have looked better on a darker woman, but Ketrickin's girlish delight was dazzlingly obvious in her smile, and around me people turned and murmured approvingly to one another to see their princess so adorned. Perhaps, I thought, she might enjoy our outlandish colours and accoutrements. I was grateful for the briefness of King Eod's speech that followed, for all he added was that he bid us welcome and invited us to rest, relax, and enjoy the city. If we had any needs, we had but to ask of anyone we encountered, and they would attempt to meet them. Tomorrow at noon would begin the three-day ceremony of the joining, and he desired that we all be well rested to enjoy it. Then he and his offspring descended, to mingle as freely with one and all as if we were all soldiers on the same watch. John Qui had obviously attached herself to me, and there was no gracious way to escape her company, so I resolved to learn as much as I could, as quickly as I could, about their customs. But one of her first acts was to present me to the prince and princess. They were standing with August, who appeared to be explaining how, through him, Verity would witness his ceremony. He was speaking loudly, as if this would somehow make it easier for them to understand. Jonqui listened a moment, then apparently decided that August had finished speaking. She spoke as if we were all children brought together for sweet cakes while our parents conversed. Rorisk, Ketrickin, this young man is most interested in our gardens. Perhaps later we can arrange that he speak with those who tend them. She seemed to speak especially to Ketrickin, as she added, His name is Fitzchivalry. August frowned suddenly, and amended her introduction. Fitz, the bastard. Ketrickin looked shocked at this sobriquet, but Rurisk's fair face darkened somewhat. Ever so slightly he turned toward me, putting his shoulder to August. Even so, it was a gesture that needed no explaining in any language. Yes, he said, switching to Tjurda and looking me full in the eye. Your father spoke of you to me.
the last time I saw him. I was grieved to hear of his death. He did much to prepare the way for the forging of this bond between our folk. You knew my father? I asked stupidly. He smiled down at me. Of course. He and I were treating together, regarding the use of a Blue Rock Pass at Moon's Eye, northeast of here, when he first learned of you. When our time of talking of passes and trade as envoys was done, we sat down to meet together, and spoke together, as men, of what he must next do. I confess, I still do not understand why he felt he must not rule as king. The customs of one folk are not those of another. Still, with this wedding, we shall be closer to making one folk of our peoples. Do you think that would please him? Rorisk was giving me his sole attention, and his use of Tjurda effectively excluded August from the conversation. Ketrikin appeared fascinated. August's face past Yorick's shoulder grew very still. Then, with a grim smile of purest hatred for me, he turned aside and rejoined the group around Regal, who was speaking with King Eod. For whatever reason, I had the complete attention of Rurisk and Ketrikin. I did not know my father well, but I think he would be pleased to see. I began, but at that moment, Princess Ketrikin smiled brilliantly at me. Of course, how could I have been so stupid? You are the one they call Fitz. Do you not usually travel with Lady Time, King Shrewd's poisoner? And are you not training as her apprentice? Regal has spoken of you. How kind of him, I said inanely, and I have no idea what next was said to me, nor what I replied. I could only be thankful I did not reel where I stood. And inside me, for the first time, I acknowledged that what I felt for Regal went beyond distaste. Rurisk frowned a brother's rebuke at Ketrikin, and then turned to deal with a servant urgently asking his instructions about something. Around me, people conversed genially amid summer colours and scents, but I felt as if my guts had turned to ice. I came back to myself when Ketrikin plucked at my sleeve. They are this way, she informed me, or are you too weary to enjoy them now? If you wish to retire, it will offend no one. I understand that many of you were too weary to even walk into the city. But many of us were not, and would truly have enjoyed the chance to walk leisurely through Jampe. I have been told of the blue fountains, and look forward to seeing them. I only faltered slightly as I said this, and hoped it had some bearing on what she had been saying to me. At least, it had nothing to do with poison. I will be sure you are guided to them, perhaps this evening, but for now, come this way. And with no more ado or formality than that, she led me away from the gathering. August watched after us as we walked away, and I saw Regal turn and say something in an aside to Roud. King Eod had withdrawn from the crowd and was looking benignly down on all from an elevated platform. I wondered why Raud had not remained with the horses and other servants. But then Ketrikin was drawing a painted screen aside from a door opening, and we were leaving the main room of the palace. We were outside, in fact.
walking on a stone pathway under an archway of trees. They were willows, and their living branches had been interlaced and woven overhead to form a green screen from the noon sun. And they shed rain from the path too, at least most of it. Ketrickin added as she noted my interest. This path leads to the shade gardens. They are my favorites. But perhaps you would wish to see the herbery first. I shall enjoy seeing any and all of the gardens, my lady. I replied, and this at least was true. Out here, away from the crowd, I would have more chance to sort my thoughts and ponder what to do in my untenable position. It was occurring to me, belatedly, that Prince Rurisk had shown none of the signs of injury or illness that Regal had reported. I needed to withdraw from the situation and reevaluate it. There was more, much more going on than I had been prepared for. But with an effort, I pulled my thoughts away from my own dilemma and focused on what the princess was telling me. She spoke her words clearly, and I found her conversation much easier to follow away from the background chatter of the great hall. She seemed to know much about the gardens, and gave me to understand that it was not a hobby, but knowledge that was expected of her as a princess. As we walked and talked, I constantly had to remind myself that she was a princess and betrothed to Verity. I had never encountered a woman like her before. She wore a quiet dignity, quite unlike the awareness of station that I usually encountered in those better born than I. But she did not hesitate to smile, or become enthused, or stoop to dig in the soil around a plant to show me a particular type of root she was describing. She rubbed the root free of dirt, then sliced a bit with her belt knife from the heart of the tuber to allow me to taste its tang. She showed me certain pungent herbs for seasoning meat, and insisted I taste a leaf of each of three varieties, for though the plants were very similar, the flowers were very different. In a way, she was like Patience, without her eccentricity. In another way, she was like Molly, but without the callousness that Molly had been forced to develop to survive. Like Molly, she spoke directly and frankly to me, as if we were equals. I found myself thinking that Verity might find this woman more to his liking than he expected. And yet, another part of me worried what Verity would think of his bride. He was not a womanizer, but his taste in women was obvious to anyone who had been much around him. And those that he smiled upon were usually small and round and dark, often with curly hair and girlish laughter and tiny soft hands. What would he think of this tall, pale woman, who dressed as simply as a servant, and declared she took much pleasure in tending her own gardens? As our talk turned, I found she could speak as familiarly about falconry and horse-breeding as any stableman. And when I asked her what she did for pleasure, she told me of her small forge and tools for working metal, and lifted her hair to show me the earrings she had made for herself. The finely hammered silver petals of a flower clasped a tiny gem like a drop of dew. I had once told Molly that Verity deserved a competent and active wife, but now I wondered if she would much beguile him. He would respect her, I knew, but was respect enough between a king and his queen? 
I resolved not to borrow trouble, but to keep my word to verity instead. I asked her if Regal had told her much of her husband, and she became suddenly quiet. I sensed her drawing on her strength, as she replied that she knew he was a king-in-waiting, with many problems facing his realm. Regal had warned her that Verity was much older than she was, a plain and simple man who might not take much interest in her. Regal had promised to be ever by her, helping her to adapt, and doing his best to see that the court was not a lonely place for her, so she was prepared. How old are you? I asked impulsively. Eighteen, she replied, and then smiled to see the surprise on my face. Because I am tall, your people seem to think I am much older than that, she confided in me. Well, you are younger than Verity, then, but not so much more than between many wives and husbands. He will be thirty-three this spring. I had thought him much older than that, she said wonderingly. Regal explained they share but a father. It is true that Chivalry and Verity were both sons of King Shrewd's first queen, but there is not that great a span between them, and Verity, when he is not burdened with the problems of state, is not so dour and severe as you might imagine him. He is a man who knows how to laugh. She cast me a sideways glance, as if to see if I was trying to put a better face on Verity than he deserved. It is true, Princess. I have seen him laugh like a child at the puppet shows at Spring Fest, and when all join in for luck at the fruit press to make fall wine, he does not hold back. But his greatest pleasure has always been the hunt. He has a wolfhound, Leon, whom he holds dearer than some men hold their sons. But— Ketrickin ventured to interrupt. Surely this is as he was once— for Regal speaks of him as a man older than his years, bent down by the cares of his people. Bent down as a tree burdened by snow that springs erect again with the coming of spring. His last words to me before I left, Princess, were to desire me to speak well of him to you. She cast her eyes down quickly, as if to hide from me the sudden lift of her heart. I see a different man when you speak of him. She paused, and then closed her mouth firmly, forbidding herself the request I heard anyway. I have always seen him as a kind man, as kind as one lifted to such a responsibility can be. He takes his duties very seriously, and will not spare himself from what his folk need of him. This it is that has made him unable to come here to you. He engages in a battle with the Red Ship Raiders, one he couldn't fight from here. He gives up his interests of a man to fulfill his duty as a prince, not through a coldness of spirit or a lack of life in himself. She gave me a sideways glance, fighting the smile from her face, as if what I told her were the sweetest flattery such as a princess must not believe. He is taller than I am, but only by a bit. His hair is very dark, as is his beard when he lets it grow. His eyes are blacker still, yet, when he is enthused, they shine. It is true there is a scattering of grey in his hair now that you would not have found a year ago. True also that his work has kept him from the sun and the wind 
so his shoulders no longer tear the seams of his shirts. But my uncle is still very much a man, and I believe that when the danger of the red ships has been driven from our shores, he will ride and shout and hunt with his hound once more. You'll give me heart, she muttered, and then straightened herself as if she had admitted some weakness. Looking at me gravely, she asked, Why does Regal not speak of his brother so? I thought I went to an old man, shaking of hand, too burdened by his duties to see a wife as anything other than a duty. Perhaps he... I began, and could think of no courtier's way to say that Regal was frequently deceptive if it gained him his goal. For the life of me, I had no idea what goal might be served by making Ketrickin so dread verity. Perhaps he has been unflattering about other things as well. Ketrickin suddenly supposed aloud. Something seemed to alarm her. She took a breath and became suddenly franker. There was an evening in my chamber, when we had dined, and Regal had, perhaps, drunk a bit too well. He told tales of you then, saying you had once been a sullen, spoiled child, too ambitious for your birth, but that since the king had made you his prisoner, you seemed content with your lot. He said it seemed to suit you, for even as a boy you had enjoyed eavesdropping and skulking about and other secretive pursuits. Now I do not tell you this to make a mischief, but only to let you know what I first believed of you. The next day Regal begged me to believe it had been the fancies of the wine rather than the facts he had shared with me. But one thing he had said that night was too icy a fear for me to entirely lay aside. He said that if the king did send you or Lady Time, it would be to poison my brother, so that I might be the sole heir to the mountain kingdom. You are speaking too quickly, I chided her gently, and hoped my smile did not look as dizzy and sickly as I suddenly felt. I did not understand all you said. Desperately, I strove to think of what to say. Even as accomplished a liar as I found such a direct confrontation uncomfortable. I am sorry, but you speak our language so well, almost like a native almost as if you were recalling it rather than learning it new. I will go more slowly. Some weeks, no, it was over a month ago, Regal came to my chambers. He had asked if he might dine alone with me, that we might get to know one another better, and... Ketrickin! It was Rurisk, calling down the path as he came seeking us. Regal is asking that you would come and meet the lords and ladies who have come so far to see your marriage. Chong Kui was at his shoulder, hurrying after him, and as the second and unmistakable wave of dizziness hit me, I thought she looked too knowing. And I asked myself, what step would Chade have taken if someone had sent a poisoner to Shrewd's court to eliminate Verity? all too obvious. Perhaps, John Quee suddenly suggested, Fitz Chivalry would like to be shown the blue fountains now. Litress has said she would gladly take him. Maybe this afternoon. 
I managed to say. I find myself suddenly wearied. I think I shall seek my chamber. None of them looked surprised. Shall I have some wine sent to you? John Kui asked graciously. Or perhaps some soup? The others will be summoned to a meal soon, but if you are tired, it is no trouble to bring food to you. Years of training came to the fore. I kept my posture straight, despite the sudden fire in my belly. That would be most kind of you, I managed to say. The brief bow I forced myself to make was sophisticated torture. I am sure I will rejoin you soon. And I excused myself, and I did not run, nor curl in a ball and whimper as I wished to. I walked, with obvious enjoyment of the plantings, back through the garden to the door of the great hall. And all three of them watched me go, and spoke softly together of what we all knew. I had but one trick left to me, and small hope it would be effective. Back in my room I dug out the sea-purge the fool had given me. How long, I wondered, had it been since I had eaten the honey-cakes? For that was the venue I would have chosen. Fatalistically I decided I would trust the ewer of water in my room. A tiny part of me said that was foolish, but as wave after wave of giddiness washed over me, I felt incapable of any further thought. With shaking hands I crumbled the sea-purge into water. The dried herb absorbed the water and became a green, sticky wad, which I managed to choke down. I knew it would empty my stomach and bowels. The only question was, would it be swift enough? Or was the chiorda poison too widespread in me? I spent a miserable evening that I will not dwell on. No one came to my room with soup or wine. In my moments of lucidity, I decided they would not come until they were sure their poison had had its effect. Morning, I decided. They would send a servant to waken me, and he would discover my death. I had until morning. It was past midnight when I was able to stand. I left my room as silently as my shaking legs would carry me, and went out into the garden. I found a cistern of water there, and drank until I thought I would burst. I ventured farther into the garden, walking slowly and carefully, for I ached as if I had been beaten and my head pounded painfully with each step I took. But eventually I stumbled into an area of fruit trees so gracefully trained along a wall, and as I had hoped, they were heavy with the harvest. I helped myself, filling my jerkin with a supply. These I would conceal in my room to give me food I could safely consume. Sometime tomorrow I would make an excuse to go down and check on Sooty. My saddlebags still held some dried meat and hard bread. I hoped it would be enough to get me through this visit. And as I made my way back to my room, I wondered what else they would try when they found the poison hadn't worked. 21. Princes. Of the Churdan herb, carry me. Their saying is, a leaf to sleep, two to dull pain, three for a merciful grave. Toward dawn I finally dozed, only to be awakened by Prince Rurisk flinging aside the screen that served as door to my chamber. 
he burst into the room, flourishing a sloshing decanter. The looseness of the garment that fluttered about him declared it a nightrobe. I rolled quickly from the bed and managed to stand, with the bedstead between us. I was cornered, sick and weaponless, save for my belt knife. You still live? he exclaimed in amazement, then advanced on me with his flask. Quick, drink this. I would sooner not, I told him, retreating as he advanced. Seeing my wariness, he paused. You have taken poison, he told me carefully. It is fully a miracle of Tranzuli that you still live. This is a purge that will flush it from your body. Take it, and you may still live. There is nothing left in my body to purge, I told him bluntly, and then caught at a table as I began to shake. I knew I had been poisoned when I left you last night. And you said nothing to me? He was incredulous. He turned back to the door where Ketrikan now peeked in timidly. Her hair was in tousled braids, and her eyes red with weeping. It is averted, small thanks to you, her brother told her severely. Go and make him a salty broth from some of last night's meat, and bring us sweet pastry as well. Enough for both of us, and tea. Go now, you foolish girl. Ketrikan scampered off like a child. Rurisk gestured at the bed. Come. Trust me enough to sit down. Before you upset the table with your shaking, I am speaking plainly to you. You and I, Fitz Chivalry, we have no time for this distrust. There is much we must speak of, you and I. I sat down, not out of trust so much as for fear I would otherwise collapse. Without formality, Rurisk sat down on the end of the bed. My sister, he said gravely, is impetuous. Poor Verity will find her more child than woman, I fear. And much of that is my fault. I have spoiled her so. But although that explains her fondness for me, it does not excuse her poisoning of a guest, especially not on the eve of her wedding to his uncle. I think I would have felt much the same about it at any time, I said, and Rorisk threw back his head and laughed. There is much of your father in you. So would he have said, I am sure. But I must explain. She came to me days ago to tell me that you were coming to make an end of me. I told her then that it was not her concern and I would take care of it, but, as I have said, she is impulsive. Yesterday she saw an opportunity and took it, with no regard as to how the death of a guest might affect a carefully negotiated wedding. She thought only to do away with you before vows bound her to the six duchies and made such an act unthinkable. I should have suspected it when she took you so quickly to the gardens. The herbs she gave me? He nodded, and I felt a fool. But after you had eaten them, you spoke so fair to her that she came to doubt you could be what it was said you were. So she asked you, but you turned the question aside by pretending to not understand. So again she doubted you. Still it should not have taken her all night to come to me with her tale of what she had done and her doubts of the wisdom of it. For that, I apologize. Too late to apologize. I have already forgiven you. I heard myself say. Rorisk looked at me.
That was your father's saying as well. He glanced at the door a moment before Ketrigan came through it. Once she was within the room, he slid the screen shut and took the tray from her. Sit down, he told her sternly, and see another way of dealing with an assassin. He lifted a heavy mug from the tray and drank deeply of it, before passing it to me. He shot Ketrigan another glance, and if that was poisoned you have just killed your brother as well. He broke an apple pastry into three portions. Select one, he told me. And then he took that one for himself, and gave the next I chose to Ketrigan. So you may see there is nothing amiss with this food. I see small reason why you should give me poisoning this morning after coming to tell me I was poisoned last night, I admitted. Still my palate was alive, questing for the slightest mistake. But there was none. It was rich, flaky pastry stuffed with ripe apples and spices. Even if I had not been so empty, it would have been delicious. Exactly, Rorisk said in a sticky voice and then swallowed. And if you were an assassin, here he shot a warning to silence Ketrigan. You would find yourself in the same position. Some murders are only profitable if no one else knows they were murders. Such would be my death. Were you to slay me now, indeed were I to die within the next six months, Ketrigan and Jonquy both would be shrieking to the stars that I had been assassinated. Scarcely a good foundation for an alliance of peoples. Do you agree? I managed a nod. The warm broth in the mug had stilled most of my trembling, and the sweet pastry tasted fit for a god. So, we agree that were you an assassin, there would now be no profit to carrying out my murder. Indeed, there would be a very great loss to you if I died, for my father does not look on this alliance with the favor that I do. Oh, he knows it is wise, for now but I see it as more than wise. I see it as necessary. Tell this to King Shrewd. Our population grows, but there is a limit to our arable soil. Wild game will only feed so many. Comes a time when a country must open itself to trade, especially so rocky and mountainous a country as mine. You have heard, perhaps, that the Jampe way is that the ruler is the servant of his people? Well, I serve them in this wise. I marry my beloved younger sister away in the hopes of winning grain and trade routes and lowland goods for my people, and grazing rights in the cold part of the year when our pastures are under snow. For this too I am willing to give you timbers, the great straight timbers that Verity will need to build his warships. Our mountains grow white oak, such as you have never seen. This is a thing my father would refuse. He has the old feelings about the cutting of live trees, and, like Regal, he sees your coast as a liability, your ocean as a great barrier. But I see it as your father did, a wide road that leads in all directions, and your coast as our access to it. And I see no offence in using trees uprooted by the annual floods and windstorms. I held my breath a moment. This was a momentous decision, I found myself nodding to his words. So, will you carry my words to King Shrewd, and say to him that it is better to have a live friend in me 
I could think of no reason not to agree. Aren't you going to ask him if he intended to poison you? Ketrickin demanded. If he answered yes, you would never trust him. If he answered no, you would probably not believe him and think him a liar as well as an assassin. Besides, is not one admitted poisoner in this room enough? Ketrickin ducked her head, and a flush suffused her cheeks. So come, Rorisk told her, and held out a conciliatory hand. Our guest must get what little rest he can before the day's festivities, and we must be back to our chambers before the whole household wonders why we are dashing about in our nightclothes. And they left me, to lie back on my bed and wonder, what manner of folk were these that I dealt with? Could I believe their open honesty, or was it a magnificent sham for Eden knew what ends? I wished Chade were here. More and more I felt nothing was as it seemed. I dared not doze, for I knew if I fell asleep, nothing would wake me before nightfall. Servants came soon with pitchers of warm water and cool, and fruit and cheese on a platter. Reminding myself that these servants might be better born than myself, I treated them all with great courtesy, and later wondered if that might not be the secret of their harmonious household, that all the servants, or royalty, be treated with the same courtesy. It was a day of great festivity. The entries to the palace had been thrown wide open, and folk had come from every vale and dell of the mountain kingdom to witness this pledging. Poets and minstrels performed, and more gifts were exchanged, including my formal presentation of the herbals and herb starts. The breeding stock that had been sent from the six duchies was displayed and then gifted forth again to those most in need of it, or most likely to be successful with it. A single ram or bull with a female or two, might be sent out as a common gift to the whole village. All of the gifts, whether fowl or beast, or grain or metal, were brought within the palace so that all might admire them. Burritch was there. For the first time I had glimpsed him in days. He might have been up before dawn to have his charges so glossy. Every hoof was freshly oiled, every mane and tail plaited with bright ribbons and bells. The mare to be given to Ketrickin was saddled and bridled in harness of finest leather, and her mane and tail hung with so many tiny silver bells that each swish of her tail was a chorus of tinkling. Our horses were different creatures from the small and shaggy stock of the mountain folk, and attracted quite a crowd. Burritch looked weary, yet proud, and his horses stood calmly amidst the clamour. Ketrickin spent a deal of time admiring her mare, and I saw her courtesy and deference thawing Burritch's reserve. When I drew closer, I was surprised to hear him speaking in hesitant but clear Chiorda. But a greater surprise was in store for me that afternoon. Food had been set out on long tables, and all palace residents and visitors dined freely. Much had come from the kitchens of the palace, but much more from the mountain folk themselves. They came forward without hesitation to set out wheels of cheese and loaves of dark bread and dried or smoked meats, or pickles, or bowls of fruit. It would have been tempting had not my stomach still been so touchy. But the way the food was given was what impressed me. It was unquestioning this giving and taking between the royalty and their subjects. I noted, too, 
There were no sentries or guards of any kind upon the doors, and all mingled and talked as they ate. At noon precisely, a silence fell over the crowd. The Princess Ketrikin alone ascended the central dais. In simple language, she announced to all that she now belonged to the six duchies and hoped to serve that land well. She thanked her land for all it had ever done for her, for the food it had grown to feed her, the waters of its snows and rivers, the airs of the mountain breezes. She reminded all that she did not change her allegiance due to any lack of love for her land, but rather in the hopes of it benefiting both the lands. All kept silent as she spoke, and as she descended from the dais, and then the merriment resumed. Rorisk came seeking me out to see how I did. I did my best to assure him I was fully recovered, though in truth I longed to be sleeping. The clothing Mistress Hasty had decreed for me was of the latest court fashion and featured highly inconvenient sleeves and tassels that fell into anything I tried to do or eat, and an uncomfortably snug waist. I longed to be out of the press of people, where I could loosen some laces and get rid of the collar. But I knew that if I left now, Chade would frown when I reported to him and demand that I somehow know all that had happened while I was absent. Rurisk, I think, sensed my need for a bit of quiet, for he suddenly proposed a stroll out to his kennels. Let me show you what the addition of some six duchies' blood a few years back did for my dogs, he offered. We left the palace and walked down a short way to a long, low wooden building. The clean air cleared my head and lifted my spirits. Inside, he showed me a pen where a bitch presided over a litter of red pups. They were healthy little creatures, glossy of coat, nipping and tumbling about in the straw. They came readily, totally unafraid of us. These are of buckkeep lineage, and will hold to a scent even in a downpour, he told me proudly. He showed me other breeds as well, including a tiny dog with wiry legs which, he claimed, would clamber right up a tree after game. We emerged from his kennels and out into the sun, where an older dog slept lazily on a pile of straw. Sleep on, old man. You've fathered enough pups that you never need hunt again, except you love it so, Rorisk told him genially. At the master's voice, the old hound heaved himself to his feet and came to lean affectionately on Rorisk. He looked up at me, and it was nosy. I stared at him, and his copper-oar eyes returned the look. I quested softly toward him and for a moment received only puzzlement, and then a flood of warmth, of affection shared and remembered. There was no doubt that he was Rurisk's sound now. The intensity of the bond that had been between us was gone. But he offered me back great fondness and warm memories of when we were puppies together. I went down on one knee and stroked the red coat gone all bristly with the years and looked into the eyes that were beginning to show the clouding of age. For an instant, with the physical touch, the bond was as it had been. I knew he was enjoying dozing in the sun, but could be persuaded to go hunt with very little trouble, especially if Rurisk came along. I patted his back and drew away from him, 
I looked up to find Rorisk regarding me strangely. I knew him when he was just a puppy. I told him. Burridge sent him to me, in care of a wandering scribe, these many years ago, Rorisk told me. He has brought me great pleasure, in company and in hunting. You have done well by him, I said. We left and strolled back to the palace, but as soon as Rorisk left my side, I went straight to Burridge. As I came up, he had just received permission to take the horses outside and into the open air, for even the calmest beast will grow restive in close quarters with many strangers. I could see his dilemma. While he was taking horses out, he would be leaving the others untended. He looked up warily as I approached. With your leave, I will help you move them, I offered. Burridge's face remained impassive and polite. But before he could open his mouth to speak, a voice behind me said, I am here to do that, master. You might soil your sleeves, or overly weary yourself working with beasts. I turned slowly, baffled by the venom in Cobb's voice. I glanced from him to Burridge, but Burridge did not speak. I looked squarely at Burridge. Then I will walk alongside you, if I may, for I have something important we must speak of. My words were deliberately formal. For a moment longer, Burridge gazed at me. Bring the princess's mare, he said at last. And that bay filly. I will take the greys. Cobb, mind the rest for me, I shan't be long. And so I took the mare's head and the filly's lead rope and followed Burridge as he edged the horses through the crowd and out of doors. There is a paddock this way, he said and no more. We walked for a bit in silence. The crowd thinned rapidly once we were away from the palace. The horses' hooves thudded pleasantly against the earth. We came to the paddock which fronted on a small barn with a tack room. For a moment or two it almost seemed normal to be working alongside Burridge again. I unsaddled the mare and wiped the nervous sweat from her while he shook out grain into a grain box for them. He came to stand beside me as I finished with the mare. She's a beauty, I said admiringly. From Lord Ranger's stock? Yes. His word cut off the conversation. You wish to speak to me? I took a great breath, then said it simply. I just saw Nosey. He's fine. Older now, but he's had a happy life. All these years, Burridge, I always believed you killed him that night, dashed out his brains, cut his throat, strangled him. I imagined it a dozen different ways a thousand times. All those years, he looked at me incredulously. You believed I would kill a dog for something you did? I only knew he was gone. I could imagine nothing else. I thought it was my punishment. For a long time he was still. When he looked back up at me, I could see his torment. How you must have hated me, and feared you, all those years. And you never learned better of me, never thought to yourself he would not do such a thing. 
I shook my head slowly. Oh, Fitz, he said sadly. One of the horses came to nudge at him, and he patted it absently. I thought you were stubborn and sullen. You thought you had been grievously wronged. No wonder we have been so much at odds. It can be undone, I offered quietly. I have missed you, you know. Missed you sorely, despite all our differences. I watched him thinking, and for a moment or two I thought he would smile and clap me on the shoulder and tell me to go fetch the other horses. But his face grew still, and then stern. But for all that, it did not stop you. You believed I had it in me to kill any animal you used the wit on, but it did not stop you from doing it. I don't see it the way you do, I began, but he shook his head. We are better parted, boy. Better for both of us. There can be no misunderstandings if there are no understandings at all. I can never approve or ignore what you do, never. Come to me when you can say you will do it no more. I will take your word on it, for you've never broken your word to me, but until then, we are better parted. He left me standing by the paddock, and went back for his other horses. I stood a long time feeling sick and weary, and not just from Ketrickin's poison. But I went back into the palace and walked about and spoke to people and ate, and even endured with silence the mocking, triumphant smiles Cobb gave me. The day seemed longer than any two days in my previous experience. Had not it been for my burning and gurgling stomach, I would have found it exciting and absorbing. The afternoon and early evening were given over to congenial contests of archery, wrestling, and foot races. Young and old, male and female, joined in on these contests, and there seemed to be some mountain tradition that whoever won such contests on such an auspicious occasion would enjoy luck for a full turn of a year. Then there was more food, and singing, and dancing of dancers, and an entertainment like a puppet show, but done all with shadows on a screen of silk. By the time folk began to retire, I was more than ready for my bed. It was a relief to close my chamber screen and be alone. I was just peeling off my annoying shirt and reflecting on what a strange day it had been, when there was a tap at my door. Before I could speak, Severins slid open the screen and slipped in. Regal commands your presence, he told me. Now? I asked, owlishly. Why else would he send me now? Severins demanded. Wearily, I pulled my shirt back on and followed him out of the room. Regal's chambers were in an upper level of the palace. It was not really a second floor, but more like a wooden terrace built to one side of the great hall. The walls were screens and there was a sort of balcony where he might stand and look down before descending. These rooms were much more richly decorated. Some of the work was obviously Tiurda, bright birds brushed onto silk panels and figurines carved of amber. But much of the tapestries and statues and hangings looked to me like things Regal had acquired for his own pleasure and comfort. I stood waiting in his antechamber while he finished his bath. 
By the time he ambled out in his nightshirt, it was all I could do to keep my eyes open. Well? he demanded of me. I looked at him blankly. You summoned me, I reminded him. Yes, I did. I should like to know why it was necessary. I thought you had received some sort of training in this sort of thing. How long were you going to wait before you reported to me? I could think of nothing to say. I had never remotely considered reporting to Regal, to Shrewd or Chade, definitely, and to Verity, but to Regal? Need I remind you of your duty? Report! I hastily gathered my wits. Would you hear my observations on the Chiorda as a people, or information on the herbs they grow, or— I want to know what you are doing about your— Assignment. Have you acted yet? Have you made a plan? When can we expect results, and of what kind? I scarcely want the prince dropping dead at my feet, and me unprepared for it. I could scarcely credit what I was hearing. Never had Shrewd spoken so bluntly or so openly of my work, and even when our privacy was assured, he circled and danced and left me to draw my own conclusions. I had seen Severins go into his other chamber, but had no idea where the man was now or how sound carried in this chamber, and Regal was speaking as if we were discussing shoeing a horse. Are you being insolent or stupid? Regal demanded. Neither. I rejoined as politely as I was able. I am being cautious. My prince. I added this last in the hopes of putting the conversation on a more formal level. You are being foolishly cautious. I trust my valet, and there is no one else here, so report. My bastard assassin. He said the last words as if he thought them cleverly sarcastic. I took a breath and reminded myself that I was a king's man, and in this time and place, this was as close to a king as I was going to get. I chose my phrases carefully. Yesterday in the garden, Princess Ketrigan told me you had told her I was a poisoner, and that her brother, Rorisk, was my target. A lie, Regal said decisively. I told her nothing of the kind. Either you had clumsily betrayed yourself, or she was merely fishing for information. I hope you have not spoiled all by revealing yourself to her. I could have lied much better than he did. I let his remarks slide by and went on. I gave him a full report of my poisoning, and of Rurisk and Ketrigan's early morning visit. I repeated our conversation verbatim, and when I was finished— Regal spent a number of minutes looking at his nails before he spoke to me. And have you decided on a method and time yet? I tried not to show my surprise. Under the circumstances I thought it better to abandon the assignment. No nerve, Regal observed with disgust. I asked Father to send that old whore, Lady Tyne. She'd have had him in his grave by now. Sir? I asked questioningly. That he referred to Chade as Lady Time made me nearly certain that he knew nothing at all. He suspected, of course, but making revelations about Chade was definitely outside my realm. Sir, Regal mimicked back at me, and for the first time I realized the man was drunk. Physically he carried it well, he did not stink of it, 
but had brought all his pettiness to the surface. He sighed heavily, as if too disgusted for words, then flung himself down on a couch draped with blankets and cushions. Nothing has changed, he informed me. You've been given your task. Do it. If you are clever, you can make it appear an accident. Having been so naively open with Ketrikin and Rurisk, neither will expect it, but I want it done. Before tomorrow evening. Before the wedding? I asked incredulously. Don't you think the death of the bride's brother might lead her to cancel it? It would be no more than temporary if she did. I have her well in hand, boy. She is easily dazzled. That end of this thing is my concern. Yours is getting rid of her brother. Now. How will you do it? I've no idea. That seemed a better answer than saying I had no intention. I would return to Buck Keep and report back to Shrewd and Chade. If they said I had chosen wrongly, then they might do with me as they wished. But I remembered Regal's own voice from so long ago, quoting Shrewd, Don't do what you can't undo until you've considered what you can't do once you've done it. When will you know? he demanded sarcastically. I don't know. I hedged. These things cannot be done recklessly or sloppily. I need to study the man and his habits, explore his chambers, and learn the habits of his servants. I must find a way to— The wedding is two days hence, Regal interrupted. The focus of his eyes softened. I already know all the things you say you must discover. Easiest then for me is to plan it for you. Come to me tomorrow night and I will give you your orders. Mind this well, bastard. I do not want you to act before you have informed me. I would find any surprise unpleasant. You would find it deadly. He lifted his eyes to me, but I kept my face a careful blank. You are dismissed, he told me regally. Report to me here tomorrow night at the same time. Do not make me send Severins to fetch you. He has more important tasks, and do not think my father will not hear of your laxity. He will. He will regret not sending bitch time to do this little deed. He leaned back heavily and yawned, and I caught a whiff of wine and a subtle smoke. I wondered if he was learning his mother's habits. I returned to my chambers, intending to ponder carefully all my options and formulate a plan, but so weary was I, and half sick, that I was asleep as soon as my head touched the pillow. 22. Dilemmas. In the dream, the fool stood by my bed. He looked down at me and shook his head. Why cannot I speak clearly? Because you make it all a muddle. I see a crossroads through the fog, and who always stands within it? You. Do you think I keep you alive because I am so entranced with you? No. It is because you create so many possibilities. While you live, you give us more choices. The more choices, the more chances to steer for calmer water. 
So it is not for your benefit, but for the six duchies that I preserve your life, and your duty is the same. To live, so that you may continue to present possibilities. I awoke in precisely the same quandary I had gone to sleep in. I had no idea of what I was going to do. I lay in my bed, listening to the random sounds of the palace awaking. I needed to talk to Chade. That was not possible. So I lightly closed my eyes and tried to think as he had taught me. What do you know? he would have asked me, and what do you suspect? So, Regal had lied to King Shrewd about Rurisk's health and his attitude toward the six duchies, or possibly King Shrewd had lied to me about what Regal had said, or Rurisk had lied about his inclinations toward us. I pondered a moment and decided to follow my first assumption. Shrewd had never lied to me, that I knew, and Rurisk could have simply let me die instead of rushing to my room. So, so, Regal wanted Rurisk dead. Or did he? If he wanted Rurisk dead, why did he betray me to Ketrican? Unless she had lied about that, I considered. Not likely. She might wonder if Shrewd would send an assassin, but why would she immediately decide to accuse me? No. She had recognized my name and known of Lady Time. So, and Regal had said twice last night that he had asked his father to send Lady Time, but he had likewise betrayed her name to Ketrigan. Who did Regal really want dead? Prince Rurisk? or Lady Time, or me, after an assassination attempt was discovered? And how did any of it benefit him, and this marriage he had engineered? And why was he insisting I kill Rurisk, when all the political advantages were to his living? I needed to talk to Chade. I couldn't. I had to somehow decide this myself. Unless... Servants again brought water and fruit. I arose and dressed in my annoying clothes, and ate, and left my chambers. This day was much the same as yesterday. The holiday atmosphere was beginning to wear on me. I attempted to employ my time to advantage, enlarging my knowledge of the palace, its routines and layout. I found Eod's, Ketrican's, and Rurisk's chambers— I also carefully studied the staircase and support structures to Regal's. I discovered that Cobb slept in the stables as did Burridge. I expected that of Burridge he would not surrender the care of Buckkeep horses until he left Jampe. But why was Cobb sleeping there? To impress Burridge or to watch him? Severins and Roud both slept in the antechamber of Regal's apartments, despite a plentitude of rooms in the palace. I tried to study the distributions and schedules of the guards and sentries, but couldn't find any. And all the while, I watched for August. It took me the better part of the morning before I could find him in quiet circumstance. I need to talk to you privately, I told him. He looked annoyed and glanced about to see if anyone were watching us. Not here, Fitz. Maybe when we get back to Buckkeep. I've official duties and— 
I had been prepared for that. I opened my hand to show him the pin the king had given me so many years ago. Do you see this? I had it from King Shrewd a long time ago, and with it his promise that if I ever needed to speak to him, I need only show it, and I would be admitted to his chambers. How touching, August observed cynically. And had you some reason for telling me this story to impress me with your importance, perhaps? I need to speak to the king. Now. He isn't here, August pointed out. He turned to walk away. I took hold of his arm, turned him back to me. You can skill to him. He shook me off angrily and glanced about us again. I most certainly cannot and would not if I could. Do you think every man who can skill is allowed to interrupt the king? I have shown you the pin. I promise you he would not regard this as an interruption. I cannot. Verity, then. I do not skill to Verity until he skills to me first. Bastard, you don't understand. You took the training and you failed at it, and you really have not the slightest comprehension of what the skill is about. It is not like hallooing to a friend across a valley. It is a serious thing not to be used except for serious purposes. Again he turned away from me. Turn back, August, or regret it long. I put every ounce of menace I could into my voice. It was an empty threat. I had no real way to make him regret it, other than threatening to tattle to the king. Shrewd will not be pleased that you ignored his token. August turned slowly back. He glared at me. Well, I will do this thing then, but you must promise to take all blame for it. I will. Will you come to my chambers then, and skill for me now? Is there no other place? Your chambers? I suggested. No, that is even worse. Do not take it amiss, bastard, but I do not wish to seem to associate with you. Take it not amiss, lordling, that I feel the same about you. In the end, on a stone bench in a quiet part of Ketrickan's herb garden, August sat down and closed his eyes. What message am I to skill to shrewd? I considered. This would be a game of riddles if I were to keep August unaware of my true problem. Tell him Prince Rurisk's health is excellent, and we may all hope to see him live to old age. Regal still wishes to give him the gift, but I do not think it appropriate. August opened his eyes. The skill is an important... I know. Tell him. So August sat and took several breaths, and closed his eyes. After a few moments he opened his eyes. He says to listen to Regal. That's all? He was busy and very irritated. Now leave me alone. I fear you've made me a fool before my king. There were a dozen witty replies I could have made to that, but I let him walk away. I wondered if he had skilled to King Shrewd at all. I sat down on the stone bench and reflected that I had gained nothing at all and wasted much time. The temptation came, and I tried it. I closed my own eyes, breathed, focused, opened myself. Shrewd. My king. Nothing. No reply. 
I doubt that I skilled at all. I rose and went back into the palace. Again, that day at noon, Ketrikin ascended the dais alone. Her words today were just as simple as she announced that she was binding herself to the people of the six duchies. From this moment hence, she was their sacrifice in all things for any reason that they commanded it of her. And then she thanked her own people, blood of her blood, who had raised her and treated her well, and reminded them she did not change her allegiance out of any lack of affection for them, but only in the hopes that it would benefit both peoples. Again the silence held as she descended the steps. Tomorrow would be her day to pledge herself to verity, as a woman to a man. From what I understood, Regal and August would stand beside her tomorrow in Verity's stead, and August would skill, so that Verity might see his bride, make her pledge to him. The day dragged on for me. Chongqui came and took me to visit the Blue Fountains. I did my best to be interested and pleasant. We returned to the palace for more minstrels and feasting, and that evening's display of arts by the mountain people. Jugglers and acrobats performed, and dogs did tricks, and swordsmen displayed their prowess in stage bouts. Blue smoke was very much in evidence, and many were indulging, swinging their tiny censers before them as they milled about and talked to one another. I understood that for them it was like a caddis seed cake, a holiday indulgence, but I avoided the trailing smoke of the burn pots. I had to keep a clear head. Chade had supplied me with a potion to clear the head of wine fumes, but I had and knew of none for smoke, and I was unused to smoke. I found a clearer corner and stood apparently enraptured by a minstrel's song, but watching Regal over his shoulder. Regal sat at a table flanked by two brass burners. A very reserved August sat a slight ways from him. From time to time they spoke, August seriously, the prince dismissively. I was not close enough to hear the words, but I saw my name and skill from August's lips. I saw Ketrikin approach Regal and noted that she avoided being in the direct draught of the smoke. Regal spoke long to her, smiling and languid, and reached once to tap her hand and the silver rings she wore. He seemed to be one of those that the smoke made talkative and boastful. She seemed to teeter like a bird on a branch, now drawing closer to him and smiling, now drawing back and becoming more formal. Then Rorisk came to stand behind his sister. He spoke to Regal briefly and then took Ketrikin's arm and drew her away. Severins appeared and replenished Regal's burners. Regal gave a foolish smile of thanks and said something, indicating the whole hall with a wave of his hand. Severins laughed and left. Shortly afterward, Cobb and Roud arrived to speak to Regal. August rose and stalked indignantly off. Regal glared and sent Cobb to fetch him back. August came, but not graciously. Regal rebuked, and August glowered, then lowered his eyes and conceded. I wished desperately that I were close enough to hear what was said. Something I felt was definitely afoot. It might be nothing to do with me and my task, but somehow I doubted it. I went over my meagre store of facts, feeling sure I was missing the significance of something, but I also wondered if I was not deceiving myself. 
Perhaps I was overreacting to everything. Perhaps the safest course was simply to do as Regal told me and let him accept the responsibility. Perhaps I should save time and cut my own throat. I could, of course, go directly to Rurisk, tell him that despite my best efforts, Regal still wanted him dead, and beg asylum of him. After all, who would not find attractive a trained assassin who had already turned on one master? I could tell Regal I was going to kill Rorisk, and then simply not do it. I thought carefully about that. I could tell Regal I was going to kill Rorisk, and then kill Regal instead. The smoke, I told myself, only the smoke made that sound so wise. I could go to Burridge and tell him I was really an assassin, and ask his advice about my situation. I could take the princess's mare and ride off into the mountains. So, are you enjoying yourself? Jonghui asked, as she came up and took my arm. I realized I was staring at a man juggling knives and torches. I shall long remember this experience, I told her, and then suggested a stroll through the cool of the gardens. I knew the smoke was affecting me. Late that night, I reported to Regal's chamber. Raud admitted me this time, smiling pleasantly. Good evening, he greeted me, and I walked in as if into a wolverine's den. But the air within the chamber was blue with smoke, and this seemed the source of Raud's cheerfulness. Regal kept me waiting again, and though I tucked my chin to my chest and breathed shallowly, I knew the smoke was affecting me. Control. I reminded myself, and tried not to feel the giddiness. I shifted in my seat several times and finally resorted to openly covering my mouth and nose with a hand. It had small effect on screening the smoke. I looked up as the screen to the inner chamber slid aside, but it was only Severin's. He glanced at Raud, then came to sit beside me. After a moment of his silence I asked, Will Regal see me now? Severance shook his head. He is with a companion, but he has trusted me with all you need to know. He opened his hand on the bench between us to show me a tiny white pouch. He has obtained this for you. He trusts you will approve. A little of this mixed with wine will cause death, but not soon. There will not even be symptoms of death for several weeks, and then it comes as a lethargy that gradually increases. The man does not suffer, he added, as if this were my primary concern. I racked my brains. Is this kex gum? I had heard of such a poison, but never seen it. If Regal had a source, Chade would want to know. I do not know its name, nor does it matter. Only this. Prince Regal says you will have a use for it tonight. You will make an opportunity. What does he expect of me? That I will go to his chambers, knock, and enter with poisoned wine for him? Isn't that a bit obvious? Done that way, of course it is. But surely your training has given you more finesse than that? My training tells me that things like this are not discussed with a valet. I must hear this from Regal, or I do not act. Severin's sighed. My master foresaw this. This is his message. By the pin you carry and the crest on your breast, he commands this. 
refuse it, and you refuse your king. You will be committing treason, and he will see you hang for it. But I... Take it and go. The longer you wait, the later it is, and the more contrived will seem your visit to his chambers. Severins rose abruptly and left me. Roud sat like a toad in the corner, eyeing me and smiling. I would have to kill both of them before we returned to Buckkeep if I were to preserve my usefulness as an assassin. I wondered if they knew that. I smiled back at Roud, tasting smoke in the back of my throat. I took my poison and left. Once at the base of Regal's staircase, I retreated to the wall where it was most shadowed and clambered as swiftly as I could up one of the supports of Regal's chamber. Clinging like a cat, I snugged myself up to the supports of the chamber floor and waited. And waited. Until between the smoke whirling in my head and my own weariness and the lingering effects of Ketrickan's herbs, I wondered if I were dreaming all of it. I wondered if my clumsy trap would yield me nothing. I considered, finally, that Regal had told me he had specifically requested Lady Time, but Shrewd had sent me instead. I recalled how Chade had puzzled over that, and finally I recalled his words to me. Had my king given me up to Regal, and if he had, what did I owe to any of them? Eventually, I saw Raud depart and, after what seemed a very long time, return with Cobb. I could hear little through the floor, but enough to know Regal's voice. My evening plans were being divulged to Cobb. When I was certain of it, I wriggled out of my hiding place, clambered down, and retreated to my own room. There I made certain of some specialized supplies. I reminded myself firmly that I was a king's man. I had told Verity so. I left my chamber and walked softly through the palace. In the great hall, the common folk slept on mats on the floor in concentric circles around the dais to have reserved the best viewing of their princess's pledging tomorrow. I walked among them, and they did not stir. So much trust, so ill-placed. The chambers of the royals were at the extreme rear of the palace, farthest from the main entry. There were no guards. I walked past the door that led to the bedroom of the reclusive king, past Rorisk's door, and to Ketrickan's. Her door was decorated with hummingbirds and honeysuckle. I thought how much the fool would have liked it. I tapped lightly and waited. Slow moments passed. I tapped again. I heard the scruff of bare feet on wood, and the painted screen slid open. Ketrickan's hair had been freshly braided, but fine strands had already pulled free around her face. Her long white nightrobe accented her fairness so that she seemed pale as the fool. Do you need something? she asked sleepily. Only the answer to a question. The smoke still twined through my thoughts. I wanted to smile to be witty and clever before her, pale beauty, I thought. I pushed the impulse aside. She was waiting. If I killed your brother tonight, I said carefully, what would you do? She did not even draw back from me. I would kill you, of course. At least I would demand it done 
in justice. As I am pledged to your family now, I could not take your blood myself. But would you go on with the wedding? Would you still marry Verity? Would you like to come in? I haven't time. Would you marry Verity? I am pledged to the six duchies to be their queen. I am pledged to their people. Tomorrow I pledge to the king-in-waiting, not to a man named Verity. But even were it otherwise, ask yourself, which is the most binding? I am bound already. It is not just my work, but my father's and my brother's. I would not want to marry a man who had ordered my brother's death. But it is not the man I am pledged to. It is the six duchies. I am given there in the hopes of it benefiting my people. There I must go. I nodded. Thank you, my lady. Forgive my disturbing your rest. Where do you go now? To your brother. She remained standing in her door as I turned and walked to her brother's chamber. I tapped and waited. Rurisk must have been restive, for he opened the door much more quickly. May I come in? Certainly. Gracious, as I had expected. The edge of a giggle teased at my resolve. Chade would not be proud of you just now, I counseled myself, and refused to smile. I entered, and he closed the door behind me. Shall we have wine? I asked him. If you wish it, he said, puzzled but polite. I seated myself on a chair while he unstopped a carafe and poured for us. There was a censer on his table, too, still warm. I had not seen him indulge earlier. He probably had thought it more safe to wait until he was alone in his chamber. But you never can tell when an assassin will come calling with a pocket full of death. I pushed down a silly smile. He filled two glasses. I leaned forward and showed him my twist of paper. Painstakingly, I tipped it into his wine, picked up the glass, and swirled it to see it well dissolved. I handed it to him. I've come to poison you, you see. You die. Then Ketrickin kills me. Then she marries Verity. I lifted my glass and sipped from it. Apple wine from Pharaoh, I guessed. Probably part of the wedding gifts. So what does Regal gain? Rurisk eyed his wine with distaste and set it aside. He took my glass from my hand. He drank from it. There was no shock in his voice as he said, He's rid of you. I gather he does not value your company. He has been very gracious to me, extending many gifts to me, as well as to my kingdom. But if I were dead, Ketrickin would be left sole heir to the Mountain Kingdom. That would benefit the six duchies, would it not? We cannot protect the land we already have. And I think Regal would see it as benefiting Verity, not the kingdom. I heard a noise outside the door. That will be Cobb, coming to catch me in the act of poisoning you. I surmised. I rose, went to the door, and opened it. Ketrickin pushed past me into the room. I closed the screen quickly behind her. He's come to poison you, she warned Rorisk. I know, he said gravely. 
he put it in my wine. That's why I'm drinking his. He refilled the glass from the carafe and offered it to her. It's apple, he cajoled, when she shook her head. I don't see any humor in this, she snapped, and Rurisk and I looked at one another and grinned foolishly. Smoke. Her brother sighed benignly. It's like this. Fitzchivalry realized tonight he is a dead man. Too many people have been told he is an assassin. If he kills me, you kill him. If he doesn't kill me, how can he go home and face his king? Even if his king forgives him, half the court will know he's an assassin. That makes him useless. Useless bastards are a liability to royalty. Rorisk finished his lecture by draining the rest of his glass. Ketrican told me that even if I killed you tonight, she would still pledge to Verity tomorrow. Again he was not surprised. What would she gain by refusing? Only the enmity of the six duchies. She would be forsworn to your people, a great shame to our people. She would become outcast, to the good of no one. It would not bring me back. And would not your people rise up at the thought of giving her to such a man? We would protect them from such knowledge. Eod and my sister would, anyway. Shall a whole kingdom rise to war over the death of one man? Remember, I am sacrifice here. For the first time I dimly understood what that meant. I may very soon be an embarrassment to you, I warned him. I was told it was a slow poison, but I looked at it. It is not. It is a simple extract of dead root and actually rather swift, if given in sufficient quantity. First it gives a man tremors. Rorisk extended his hands on the table, and they trembled. Ketrikin looked furious with both of us. Death follows swiftly, and I expect I am supposed to be caught in the act and disposed of along with you. Rorisk clutched his throat, then let his head loll forward on his chest. I am poisoned, he intoned theatrically. I've had enough of this, Ketrick spat, just as Cobb tore the door open. Where treachery, he cried. He went white at the sight of Ketrickin. My lady princess, tell me you have not drunk the wine. This tedious bastard has poisoned it. I think the drama was rather spoiled by the lack of response. Ketrickin and I exchanged looks. Rurisk rolled from his chair onto the floor. Oh, stop it! She hissed at him. I put the poison in the wine, I told Cobb genially, just as I was charged to do. And then Rurisk's back arched in his first convulsion. The blinding realization of how I had been duped took but an instant. Poison in the wine, a gift of Pharaoh apple wine, probably given this very evening. Regal had not trusted me to put it there, but it was easy enough to accomplish in this trusting place. I watched Rurich arch again, knowing there was nothing I could do. Already there was the spreading numbness in my own mouth. I wondered, almost idly, how strong the dose had been. I had only a cup. Would I die here, or on a scaffold? Ketrickin herself understood, a moment later, that her brother was truly dying. You soulless filth! She spat at me, and then sank down at Rurisk's side. 
to lull him with jests and smoke, to smile with him as he dies. Her eyes flashed at Cobb. I demand his death. Tell Regal to come here now. I was moving for the door, but Cobb was faster. Of course. No smoke for Cobb this night. He was faster and more muscular than I, clearer of head. His arms closed around me, and he bore me down to the floor. His face was close to mine as he drove his fist into my belly. I knew this breath, this scent of sweat. Smithy had scented this before he died, but this time the knife was in my sleeve and very sharp and treated with the swiftest poison Chade knew. After I put it into him, he managed to hit me twice, good solid punches, before he fell back, dying. Goodbye, Cobb. As he fell, I suddenly saw a freckly stable boy saying, Come along now, there's some good fellows. It could have gone so many different ways. I had known this man. Killing him killed a part of my own life. Burridge was going to be very upset with me. All those thoughts had taken but a fraction of a second. Cobb's outflung hand had not struck the floor before I was moving for the door. Ketrickin was even faster. I think it was a brass water ewer. I saw it as a white burst of light. When I came to myself, everything hurt. The most immediate pain was in my wrists, for the cords that knotted them together behind my back were unbearably tight. I was being carried, sort of. Neither Roud nor Severin seemed to much care if parts of me dragged. Regal was there, with a torch, and a Chiorda I didn't know leading the way with another. I didn't know where I was either, except that we were outdoors. Is there nowhere else we can put him? No place especially secure? Regal was demanding. There was a muttered reply, and Regal said, No, you're right. We do not want to raise a great outcry right now. Tomorrow is soon enough. Not that I think he will live that long. A door was opened, and I was flung headlong to an earthen floor barely cushioned by straw. I breathed dust and chaff. I could not cough. Regal gestured with his torch. Go to the princess, he instructed Severance. Tell her I will be there shortly. See if there is anything we can do to make the prince more comfortable. You, Raud, summon August from his chambers. We will need his skill, so that King Shrewd may know how he has succored a scorpion. I will need his approval before the bastard dies. If he lives long enough to be condemned, go on now. Go! And they left, the Chiorda lighting their way for them. Regal remained, looking down on me. He waited until their footfalls were distant, before he kicked me savagely in the ribs. I cried out wordlessly, for my mouth and throat were numb. It seems we have been here before, have we not? You wallowing in straw and me looking down on you, wondering what misfortune had brought you into my life. Odd, how so many things end as they begin. And so much of justice is a circle also. Consider how you fall to poison and treachery, just as my mother did. Ah, you start. Did you think I did not know? I knew. I know much you do not think I know. Everything from the stench of Lady Time 
to how you lost your skill when Burridge would no longer let you tap his strength. He was swift enough to abandon you when he saw it might otherwise cost him his life. A tremor shook me. Regal threw back his head and laughed. Then he gave a sigh and turned. A pity I cannot stay and watch. But I have a princess to console. Poor thing. Pledged to a man she already hates. Either Regal left then, or I did, I am not clear. It was as if the sky opened up, and I flowed out into it. Being open, Verity told me, is simply not being closed. Then I dreamed, I think, of the fool, and of Verity, sleeping with his arms wrapped around his head, as if to keep his thoughts in and of Galen's voice echoing in the dark, cold chamber. Tomorrow is better. When he skills now, he scarce has any sense of the room he sits in. We do not have enough bond for me to do this from a distance. A touch will be required. There was a squeaking in the dark, a disagreeable mouse of a mind that I did not know. Do it now, it insisted. Do not be foolish, Galen rebuked it. Shall we lose it all now for the sake of haste? Tomorrow is soon enough. Let me worry about that part. You must tidy things there. Roud and Severins know too much, and the stable-master has annoyed us too long. You leave me standing in a bloodbath, the mouse squeaked angrily. Wade through it to a throne, Galen suggested. And Cobb is dead. Who will see to my horses on the way home? Leave the stable-master, then, Galen said in disgust, and then, considering, I will do him myself when you get home. I shall not mind. But the others were better done quickly. Perhaps the bastard poisoned other wine in your quarters. A pity your servants got into it. I suppose. You must find me a new valet. We will have your wife do that for you. You should be with her now. She has just lost her brother. You must be horrified at what has come to pass. Try to blame the bastard rather than Verity, but not too convincingly. And tomorrow, when you are as bereaved as she, well, we shall see what mutual sympathy leads to. She is as big as a cow and as pale as a fish. But with the mountain lands, you will have a defensible inland kingdom. You know the coastal duchies will not stand for you, and Pharaoh and Tilth cannot stand alone between the mountains and the coastal duchies. Besides, she need not live longer than her first child's birth. It's chivalry farcier, Verity said in his sleep. King Shrewd and Chade played at dice-bones together. Patience stirred in her sleep. Chivalry? she asked softly. Is that you? No, I said. It's no one. No one at all. She nodded and slept on. When my eyes focused again, it was dark and I was alone. My jaws trembled and my chin and shirt front were wet with my own saliva. The numbness seemed less. I wondered if that meant the poison wouldn't kill me. I doubted that it mattered. I would have small chance to speak in my own behalf. My hands had gone numb. At least they didn't hurt any more. 
I was horribly thirsty. I wondered if Rurisk was dead yet. He had taken a lot more of the wine than I had, and Chade had said it was quick. As if in answer to my question, a cry of purest pain rose to the moon. The ululation seemed to hang there, and to pull my heart out with it as it rose. Nosy's master was dead. I flung myself toward him, wrapped the wit around him, I know, I know. And we shivered together, as one he had loved passed beyond reach. The great aloneness wrapped us together. Boy? Faint but true, a paw and a nose, and a door edged open. He padded toward me, his nose telling me how bad I smelled. Smoke and blood and fear sweat. When he reached me, he lay down beside me and put his head on my back. With the touch came the bond again, stronger now that Rurisk was gone. He left me. It hurts. I know. A long time passed. Free me? The old dog lifted his head. Men cannot grieve as dogs do. We should be grateful for that. But from the depths of his anguish he still rose and set worn teeth to my bonds. I felt them loosen, a strand at a time, but had not even the strength to pull them apart. Nosy turned his head to set his back teeth to them. At last the thongs parted. I pulled my arms forward. That made everything hurt differently. I still could not feel my hands, but I could roll over and get my face out of the straw. Nosy and I sighed together. He put his head on my chest and I wrapped a stiff arm around him. Another tremor shook me. My muscles clenched and unclenched themselves so violently that I saw dots of light. But it passed, and I still breathed. I opened my eyes again. Light blinded me, but I did not know if it was real. Beside me, Nosy's tail thumped the straw. Burridge slowly sank down beside us. He put a gentle hand on Nosy's back as my eyes adjusted to his lantern. I could see the grief in his face. Are you dying? He asked me. His voice was so neutral, it was like hearing a stone speak. I'm not sure. That was what I tried to say. My mouth still wasn't working very well. He rose and walked away. He took the lantern with him. I lay alone in the dark. Then the light came back, and Burridge with a bucket of water. He lifted my head and sloshed some into my mouth. Don't swallow it. He cautioned me. But I couldn't have made those muscles work anyway. He washed out my mouth twice more, and then half drowned me trying to get me to drink some. I fended off the bucket with a wooden hand. No, I managed. After a bit my head seemed to clear. I moved my tongue against my teeth and could feel them. I killed Cobb, I told him. I know. They brought his body out to the stables. No one wanted to tell me anything. How did you know to find me? He sighed. I just had a feeling. You heard Nosy? Yes. 
the howling. That isn't what I meant. He was quiet a long time. Sensing a thing isn't the same as using a thing. I couldn't think of anything to say back to that. After a while I said, Cobb is the one who knifed you on the stairs. Was he? Burrich considered. I had wondered why the dogs barked so little. They knew him. Only Smithy reacted. My hands screamed suddenly to life. I folded them to my chest and rocked over them. Nosey whined. Stop it, Burridge hissed. Just now I can't help it, I replied. It all hurts so bad, I'm spilling out all over. Burridge was silent. Are you going to help me? I asked finally. I don't know, he said softly, and then, almost pleadingly, Fitz, what are you? What have you become? I am what you are, I told him honestly. A king's man. Burrich, they're going to kill Verity. If they do, Regal will become king. What are you talking about? If we stay here while I explain it all, it will happen. Help me get out of here. He seemed to take a very long time to think about it, but in the end he helped me to stand, and I held on to his sleeve as I staggered out of the stables and into the night. 23. The Wedding The art of diplomacy is the luck of knowing more of your rival's secrets than he knows of yours. Always deal from a position of power. These were Shrewd's maxims, and Verity abided by them. You have to get to August. He's the only hope Verity has. We were sitting in the grayness before dawn on a hillside above the palace. We had not gotten far. The terrain was steep, and I was in no condition for hiking. I was beginning to suspect that Regal's kick had renewed Galen's old damage to my ribs. Every deep breath stabbed me. Regal's poison still sent tremors through me, and my legs buckled often and unpredictably. Alone I could not stand, for my legs would not support me. I could not even cling to a tree trunk and hold myself upright. There was no strength in my arms. Around us, in the dawn forest, Birds called, squirrels were gathering stores for the winter, and insects churred. It was hard, in the midst of all that life, to wonder how much of this damage was permanent. Were the days and strength of my youth already spent, and nothing left to me but trembling and weakness? I tried to push the question from my mind, to concentrate on the greater problems facing the six duchies. I stilled myself as Chade had taught me. Around us, the trees were immense, with a presence like peace. I understood why Eod would not cut them for timber. The needles were soft beneath us, the fragrance soothing. I wished I could just lie back and sleep like Nosy at my side. Our pains still mingled together, but at least Nosy could escape his in sleep. What makes you think August would help us? Burridge asked. If I could get him out here... I pulled my thoughts back to our dilemma. 
I don't think he's involved with the rest of it. I think he is still loyal to the king. I had presented my information to Burridge as my own careful conclusions. He was not a man likely to be convinced by phantom voices overheard in my head, so I could not tell him that Galen had not suggested killing August, and therefore he was probably ignorant of their plot. I was still unsure myself of what I had experienced. Regal could not skill, even if he could. How could I have overheard skilling between two others? No. It had to be something else, some other magic. Of Galen's devising? Was he capable of a magic that strong? I did not know. So much I do not know. I forced myself to set it all aside, for now it fit the facts I had better than any other supposition I could imagine. If he's loyal to the king and has no suspicions of Regal, then he is loyal to Regal as well. Burridge pointed out as if I were a witling. Then we'll have to force him somehow. Verity must be warned. Of course. I'll just walk in, put a knife to August's back, and march him out of there. No one will bother us. I floundered for ideas. Bribe someone to lure him out here, then jump him. Even if I knew someone bribable, what would we use? I have this. I touched the earring in my ear. Burridge looked at it and almost jumped. Where did you get that? Patience gave it to me. Right before I left. She had no right. And then, more quietly, I thought it went to his grave with him. I was silent, waiting. Burridge looked aside. It was your father's. I gave it to him. He spoke quietly. Why? Because I wanted to, obviously. He closed the topic. I reached up and began to unfasten it. No, he said gruffly. Keep it where it is. But it is not a thing to be spent on a bribe. These Chiorda can't be bribed anyway. I knew he was right about that. I tried to think of other plans. The sun was coming up, morning, when Galen would act. Perhaps had already acted. I wished I knew what was going on in the palace below. Did they know I was missing? Was Ketrikin preparing to pledge herself to a man she would hate? Were Severins and Roud dead yet? If not, could I turn them against Regal by warning them? Someone's coming. Burridge flattened himself. I lay back, resigned to whatever happened. I had no physical fight left in me. Do you know her? Burridge breathed. I turned my head. Chong Kui, preceded by a little dog that would never climb a tree for Rurisk again. The king's sister. I didn't bother whispering. She was carrying one of my nightshirts, and an instant later the tiny dog was leaping joyously around us. He romped invitingly at Nosy, but Nosy just looked at him mournfully. An instant later, Zhong Kui strode up to us. You must come back, she said to me without preamble, and you must hurry. Hard enough to come back, I told her, without hurrying to my death. I was watching behind her for other trackers. Burridge had risen and taken a defensive posture over me. No death, she promised me calmly. Ketrikin has forgiven you. 
I have been counselling her since last night, but only lately convinced her. She has invoked her kin right to forgive kin for injury to kin. By our law, if kin forgive kin, no other can do otherwise. Your regal sought to dissuade her, but only made her angry. Here, while I am in this place, I can still invoke the law of the mountain people, she told him. King Eod agreed, not because he does not mourn Rurisk, but because the strength and wisdom of Jampe law must be respected by all. So, you must come back, I considered. And have you forgiven me? No, she snorted. I do not forgive my nephew's murderer, but I cannot forgive you for what you did not do. I do not believe you would drink wine you had poisoned, not even a little. Those of us who know best the dangers of poison tempt them least. You would have just pretended to drink, and never spoken of poison at all, no. This was done by someone who believes himself very clever, and believes others are very stupid. I felt, rather than saw Burridge, lower his guard, but I couldn't completely relax. Why can't Ketrickin just forgive me and let me go away? Why must I come back? There is no time for this, John Kui hissed, and it was the closest I had seen to an angry Chiorda. Shall I take months and years to teach you all I know about balances? For a pull, a push. For a breath, a sigh. Do you think no one can feel how power slews and tilts just now? A princess must endure being bartered away like a cow. But my niece is not a playing piece to be won in a dice game. Whoever killed my nephew clearly wished you to die also. Shall I let him win that toss? I think not. I do not know who I wish to win. Until I do, I will let no player be eliminated. That's logic, I understand, Burridge said approvingly. He stooped and hauled me suddenly to my feet. The world rocked alarmingly. Chong Kui came to put her shoulder under my other arm. They walked, and my feet marionetted across the ground between them. Nosy heaved himself to his feet and followed, and so we returned to the palace at Jampe. Burrich and Chong Kui took me right through the people gathered all throughout the grounds and palace to my room. I actually excited little interest. I was just an outlander who had had too much wine and smoke last night. People were too absorbed in finding good places from which to view the dais to worry about me. There was no air of mourning, so I assumed the word of Rurisk's death had not been released. When we finally entered my room, John Kui's placid face darkened. I did not do this. I only took a nightshirt to give Ruta a scent. This was the disassembly of my room. It had been thoroughly, if not discreetly, done. John Kui immediately set to putting things right, and after a moment, Burridge helped her. I sat in a chair and tried to make sense of the situation. Nosy, unnoticed, curled up in a corner. I unthinkingly extended comfort to him. Burridge immediately glanced at me, then at the woebegone dog. He looked away. When John Kui left to fetch wash water and food for me, I asked Burridge, 
Have you found a tiny wooden chest, carved with acorns? He shook his head. So they had taken my poison cash. I would have liked to prepare another dagger, or even a powder to fling. Burridge could not be always beside me to protect me, and I certainly couldn't fend off an attacker or run away in my present condition. But my trade tools were gone. I would have to hope I wouldn't need them. I suspected Raud was the one who had been here, and wondered if this had been his last act. John Kui returned with water and food, and then excused herself. Burrich and I shared wash water, and with some help, I managed to change into clean, if simple, clothes. Burrich ate an apple. My stomach quailed at the mere thought of food, but I drank the water, cold from the well, that Chong Kui had brought me. Getting my throat muscles to swallow still took conscious effort, and I felt like the water sloshed unpleasantly inside me. But I suspected it was good for me. And I felt each moment ticking by, and wondered when Galen would make his move. The screen slid aside. I looked up, expecting John Kui again. But August entered on a wave of contempt. He spoke immediately, anxious to do his errand and depart. I do not come here of my own volition. I come at the bidding of the king-in-waiting, Verity, to speak his words for him. This is his message exactly. He is grieved beyond telling by— You skilled to him? Today was he well? August seethed at my question. He was scarcely well. He is grieved beyond telling at Rurisk's death and at your betrayal. He bids you to draw strength from those around you loyal to you for you will need it to face him. Is that all? I asked. From the king-in-waiting, Verity, it is. Prince Regal bids you to attend upon him, and swiftly, for the time of the ceremony is only hours away, and he must be attired for it, and your cowardly poison, no doubt meant for Regal, has found poor Severins and Roud. Now Regal must do with an untrained valet. It will take him longer to dress, so do not keep him waiting. He is in the steams, to try to restore himself. You may find him there. How tragic for him, an untrained valet, Burrich said acidly. August puffed up like a toad. It is scarcely humorous. Have not you lost Cobb as well to this scoundrel? How can you bear to aid him? If your ignorance were not protecting you, August, I might dispel it. Burrich stood, looking dangerous. You too will face charges, August warned him as he retreated. I am to say to you, Burrich, that King-in-waiting Verity is not unaware of how you attempted to help the bastards escape, serving him as if you were King instead of Verity. You will be judged. Did Verity say so? Burrich asked, curiously. He did. He said you were once the best of king's men to chivalry, but apparently you had forgotten how to aid those who truly serve the king. Recall it, he bids you, and assures you of his great wrath if you do not return to stand before him and receive what your deed merits. I recall it only too well. I will bring Fitz to Regal. Now? As soon as he is eaten. August glowered at him and left. Screens cannot be effectively slammed, but he tried. 
I have no stomach to eat, Burridge, I protested. I know that, but we need time for this. I marked Verity's choice of words and found more in them than August did. Did you? I nodded, feeling defeated. I understood also, but it is beyond me. Are you sure? Verity does not think so, and he knows of such things. And you told me that was why Cobb tried to kill me, because they suspected you of drawing on my strength. So Galen believes you can do it too. Burritch crossed to me and went down stiffly on one knee. His bad legs stretched awkwardly behind him. He took my lax hand and placed it on his shoulder. I was king's man to chivalry, he told me quietly. Verity knew it. I have no skill myself, you understand. But chivalry gave me to understand that for such a taking it was not as important as the friendship between us. I have strength and there were few times that he needed it, and I gave it willingly. So I have withstood this before in worse circumstances. Try, boy. If we fail, we fail, but at least we will have tried. I don't know. I don't know how to skill, and I certainly don't know how to tap someone else's strength to do it, and even if I did, if I succeeded, I might kill you. If you succeed, our king may live. That is what I am sworn to. And you? He made it all seem so simple. So I tried. I opened my mind. I reached for verity. I tried with no idea how to draw strength from Burridge. But all I heard was the twittering of birds outside the palace walls, and Burridge's shoulder was only a place to rest my hand. I opened my eyes. I didn't have to tell him I'd failed. He knew. He sighed heavily. Well, I suppose I take you to Regal, he said. If we did not go, we would be forever curious as to what he wanted, I added. Burridge did not smile. You have a fey mood on you, he said. You sound more like the fool than yourself. Does the fool talk to you? I asked curiously. Sometimes, he said, and took my arm to help me up. It seems like the closer I walk to death, I told him, the funnier things seem. To you, perhaps, he said crossly. I wonder what he wants. To bargain. There can be nothing else. And if he wants to bargain, we may be able to gain something. You speak as if Regal follows the same rules of common sense as the rest of us. I've never known him to do that, and I've always hated court intrigue, Burridge complained. I'd rather clean stalls. He pulled me again to my feet. If I had ever wondered how Deadroot felt to its victim, I knew it now. I did not think I would die of it, but I did not know how much of a life it would leave me either. My legs trembled under me, and my grip was uncertain. I could feel random muscle twitches throughout my body. Neither my breath nor the beating of my heart was predictable. I longed to be still, where I could listen to my own body and decide what had been done to it. But Burridge guided my steps patiently, and Nosey drooped along behind us.
I had not been to the steams before, but Burridge had. A separate tulip bud enclosed a bubbling hot spring, tamed to use as a bath. A chiorda stood outside it. I recognized him as the torchbearer from the night before. If he thought anything odd about my reappearance, he did not show it. He stepped aside as if expecting us, and Burridge dragged me up the steps to enter. Clouds of steam fogged the air, carrying a mineral scent with them. We passed a stone bench or two. Burridge walked carefully on the smooth tile floor as we approached the source of the steam. The water rose in a central spring, with bricked sides built up around it to contain it. From there it was channeled in troughs to other smaller baths, varying the heat by the length of the trough and the depth of the pond. The steam and the noise of the falling water filled the air. I did not find it pleasant. I labored just to breathe already. My eyes adjusted to the dimness, and I saw Regal soaking in one of the larger baths. He looked up at our approach. Ah, he said, as if well pleased. August told me Burridge would bring you. Well, I suppose you know the princess has forgiven your murder of her brother. And in this place, at least, by doing so she preserves you from justice. I think it a waste of time, but local customs must be honoured. She says she considers you part of her kin group now, and so I must treat you as kin. She fails to understand you were not born of lawful union, and hence have no kin rights at all. Ah, well. Will you dismiss Burritch and join me in the springs? It might ease you. You look very uncomfortable. Held up like a shirt on the wash line. He spoke so generally, so affably, as if unaware of my hatred. What do you wish to tell me, Regal? I kept my voice flat. Will you not send Burritch away? He asked again. I am not a fool. One could argue that, but very well. I suppose I must send him away, then. The steam and the noise of the waters had cloaked the Chiorda well. He was taller than Burridge, and his cudgel was already in motion as Burridge turned. If he hadn't been supporting my weight, he could have avoided it. Burridge turned his head, but the cudgel hit his skull with a terrible sharp sound like an axe, biting wood. Burridge fell, and I with him. I landed half in one of the smaller ponds. It was not scalding, but nearly so. I managed to roll out of it, but could not regain my feet. My legs would not obey me. Burridge beside me lay very still. I reached a hand toward him, but could not touch him. Regal stood up and motioned to the Chiorda. Dead? The Chiorda stirred Burridge with a foot, gave a curt nod. Good. Regal was briefly pleased. Drag him back behind that deep tank in the corner, then you may go. To me, he said, it's unlikely anyone will be coming in here until after the ceremony. They're too busy, jostling for positions. And back in that corner, well, I doubt if he'll be found before you are. I could make no response. The Chiorda stooped and seized Burridge by the ankles. As he dragged him away, the dark brush of his hair feathered a trail of blood on the tiles.
a dizzying mixture of hatred and despair roiled with the poison through my body. The cold purpose rose and set in me. I could not hope to live now, but it did not seem important. Warning Verity did, and avenging Burridge. I had no plans, no weapons, no possibilities. So play for time, Chade's counsel advised me. The more time you create for yourself, the better the chance that something will present itself. Delay him. Perhaps someone will come to see why the prince is not dressing for the wedding. Perhaps someone else will want to use the steams before the ceremony, engage him somehow. The princess, I began, is not a problem. Regal finished for me. The princess did not forgive Burrich, only you. What I have done to him is well within my rights. He is a traitor. He must pay. And the man disposing of him was most fond of his prince, Rurisk. He has no objections to any of this. The Chiurda left the steams without a glance back. My hands scrabbled weakly on the smooth tile floor, but found no purchase. Regal busily dried himself all the while. When the man was gone, he came to stand over me. Aren't you going to call for help? He asked brightly. I took a breath, pushed down my fear. I mustered as much contempt for Regal as I could find. To whom? Who would hear me over the water? So save your strength. Wise. Pointless. But wise. Do you think Ketrickin will not know what happened? She will know you went to the steams. Unwisely in your condition, you slipped beneath the hot, hot water. Such a shame. Regal, this is madness. How many bodies do you think you can leave in your wake? How will you explain Burridge's death? To your first question, quite a few, as long as they are not people of consequence. He stooped over me and gripped my shirt. He dragged me while I thrashed weakly, a fish out of water. And to your second, well, the same. How much fuss do you think anyone will raise over a dead stableman? You are so obsessed with your plebeian self-importance that you extend it to your servants. He dumped me carelessly, half atop Burridge. His still warm body sprawled face down on the floor. Blood was congealing on the tiles around his face and still dripping from his nose. A slow bubble of blood formed on his lips, broke with his faint exhalation. He lived still. I shifted to conceal it from Regal. If I could survive, Burridge might have a chance also. Regal noticed nothing. He tugged my boots off and set them aside. You see, bastard, he said as he paused to catch his breath. Ruthlessness creates its own rules. So my mother taught me. People are intimidated by a man who acts with no apparent regard for consequences. Behave as if you cannot be touched and no one will dare to touch you. Look at the whole situation. Your death will anger some people, yes, but enough to make them take actions that would affect the security of the whole six duchies? I think not. Besides, your death will be eclipsed by other things. I'd be a fool not to take this opportunity to remove you. Regal was so damnably calm and superior. I fought him 
but he was surprisingly strong for the indulgent life he led. I felt like a kitten as he shook me out of my shirt. He folded my clothes neatly and set them aside. Minimal alibis will work. If I made too much effort to appear guiltless, people might think I cared. They might start then to pay attention themselves. So I simply know nothing. My man saw you enter with Burrich after I had left, and I go now to complain to August that you never came to talk with me so that I might forgive you, as I had promised Princess Ketrican. I will reprimand August most severely for not bringing you himself. He looked around. Let's see. A nice, deep, hot one. Right here. I clutched at his throat as he levered me up to the edge, but he shook me off easily. Goodbye, bastard, he said calmly. Pardon my haste, but you have quite delayed me, and I must rush to dress myself, or I shall be late for the wedding. And he tumbled me in. The pool was deeper than I was tall, designed to be neck-high, on a tall chiorda. It was painfully hot to my unprepared body, it drove the air from my lungs, and I sank. I pushed feebly off the bottom and managed to get my face above water. Burridge! I wasted my breath on a shout to someone who could not aid me. The water closed on me again. My arms and legs would not work together. I blundered into a wall and pushed myself under before I could once again surface and gasp in some air. The hot water was loosening my already flaccid muscles. I think I would still have been drowning even if the water had been only knee-deep. I lost count of how many times I floundered to the surface to gasp a breath. The smooth-worked stone of the walls eluded my palsied grip, and my ribs stabbed me with pain each time I tried for a deep breath. My strength was flowing out of me, lassitude flowing in. So warm so deep. Drowned like a puppy, I thought to myself, as I felt the darkness closing. Boy? Someone queried, but all was black. So much water, so hot and so deep. I could not find a bottom any more, let alone a side. I struggled feebly against the water, but there was no resistance, no up, no down. No use fighting to stay alive inside my body, nothing left to protect. So drop the walls, and see if there is one last service you can render your king. The walls of my world fell away with me, and I sped forth like an arrow finally released. Galen had been right. There was no distance in skilling, no distance at all. Buckkeep was right here, and shrewd. I shrieked in desperation but my king was intent upon other things. He was closed and walled to me, no matter how I stormed around him. No help there. Strength was going from me. Somewhere I was drowning. My whole body was failing. My thread to it was tenuous. One last chance. Verity! Verity, I cried. I found him, flailed at him, but could find no purchase, no grip. He was elsewhere, open to someone else, closed to me. Verity! I wailed, drowning in despair. And suddenly, it was as if strong hands gripped mine as I scrabbled up a slippery cliff. Gripped and held tight, 
and drew me in when I would have slipped away. Chivalry? No, it can't be. It's the boy. Fitz? You imagine things, my prince. There is no one there. Attend to what we do now. Galen, calm and insidious as poison, as he pushed me aside. I could not withstand him. He was too strong. Fitz? Verity, unsure now as I grew weaker. From I knew not where, I found strength. Something gave way before me, and I was strong. I clung to Verity like a hawk on his wrist. I was there with him. I saw with Verity's eyes the freshly decked throne room, the book of events on the great table before him, laid open to receive the recording of Verity's marriage. Around him, in their best finery and most costly jewels, the few honoured ones who had been invited to witness Verity witnessing his bride's pledge through August's eyes, and Galen, who was supposed to be offering his strength as a king's man, was poised beside and slightly behind Verity, waiting to drain him dry. And shrewd, in crown and robe upon his throne, was all unknowing, his skill burned and dulled away years ago by misuse, and him too proud to admit it. Like an echo, I saw through August's eyes as Ketrican stood pale as a wax candle on a dais before all her people. She was telling them, simply and kindly, that last night Rurisk had finally succumbed to the arrow wound he had taken on the ice fields. She hoped to please his memory by pledging herself, as he had helped arrange, to the king-in-waiting of the six duchies. She turned to face Regal. In Buck Keep, Galen's claw of a hand settled on Verity's shoulder. I broke into his link with Verity, pushed him aside. Beware Galen, Verity, beware a traitor. Come to drain you dry, touch him not. Galen's hand tightened on Verity's shoulder. Suddenly, all was a sucking vortex, draining, trying to pull everything out of Verity, and there was not much left to take. His skill was so strong because he let it take so much from him so fast. Self-preservation would have made another man hold back some of his strength. But Verity had been spending his recklessly every day to keep the red ships from his shores. So little left now for this ceremony, and Galen was absorbing it, and growing stronger as he did so. I clung to Verity, fighting desperately to reduce the loss. Verity! I cried to him, my prince! I sensed a brief rallying in him, but all was growing dim before his eyes. I heard a stirring of alarm as he sagged and caught the table. Faithless Galen kept his grip on him, bent over him as he bent to one knee, murmuring solicitously, My prince? Are you quite all right? I flung my strength to Verity, reserves I had not suspected in myself, I opened up and let go of them, just as Verity did when he skilled. I had not known I had so much to give. Take it all. I would die anyway, and you were always good to me when I was young. I heard the words as clearly as if I had spoken them, and felt the breaking of a mortal bond as strength flowed into Verity through me. He waxed suddenly strong, beast-strong and angry.
Verity's hand rose to grip Galen's. He opened his eyes. I shall be fine, he said to Galen, aloud. He looked around the room as he rose to his feet again. I but worried about you. You seem to tremble. Are you sure you are strong enough for this? You must not attempt a challenge that is beyond you. Think what might happen. And as a gardener pulls a weed from the earth, Verity smiled and pulled from the traitor all that was in him. Galen fell, clutching his chest, an empty man-shaped thing. The onlookers rushed to attend him, but Verity, replete now, lifted his eyes to the window and focused his mind afar. August, attend me well. Warn Regal his half-brother is dead. Verity boomed like the sea, and I felt August quail at the strength of the skilling. Galen was too ambitious. He attempted that which was beyond his skill. A pity the Queen's bastard could not be content with the position she gave him. A pity my younger brother could not dissuade his half-brother from his misplaced ambitions. Galen overstepped his position. My younger brother should take heed of what comes of such recklessness, and August. Be sure you tell Regal privately. Not many knew Galen was the Queen's bastard and his half-brother. I am sure he would not want scandal to soil his mother's name or his. Such family secrets should be well guarded. And then, with a force that put August on his knees, Verity pushed through him to stand before Ketrickin in her mind. I sensed his effort to be gentle. I await you, my queen-in-waiting, and by my name I swear to you, I had naught to do with your brother's death. I knew nothing of it, and I grieve with you. I would not want you to come to me, thinking his blood on my hands. Like a jewel opening was the light in Verity's heart as he exposed it to her that she might know she had not been given to a murderer. Selflessly, he made himself vulnerable to her, giving trust to build trust. She swayed but stood. August fainted. The contact was gone. And then Verity was shoving at me. Back, get back, Fitz. That's too much. You'll die. Back, let go. And he cuffed me like a bear, and I slammed back into my silent, sightless body. 24. The Aftermath In the great library at Jumpe, there is a tapestry that is rumored to contain a map through the mountains to the rain wilds. Like many Jampe maps and books, the information contained was considered so valuable that it was encoded in the forms of riddles and visual puzzles. Figured on the tapestry among many images are the forms of a dark-haired, dark man, stout and muscular, and bearing a red shield, and in the opposite corner, a golden-skinned being. The golden-skinned creature has been the victim of moths and fraying but it is still possible to see that in the scale of the tapestry it is much larger than a human, and possibly winged. Buckkeep legend has it that King Wisdom sought and found the Elderling's homeland by a secret path through the mountain kingdom. Could these figures represent an Elderling 
and King Wisdom? Does this tapestry record the path through the mountain kingdom to the elderling's homeland in the rain wilds? Much later, I learned how I had been found leaning against Burrich's body on the tile floor of the steams. I was shaking as with an ague and could not be roused. Chong Kui found us, though how she knew to look in the steams I will never know. I will always suspect that she was to Eod, as Chade was to Shrewd, not as assassin, perhaps, but as one who had ways of knowing or finding out almost anything that happened within the palace. However it was, she took command of the situation. Burrich and I were isolated in a chamber separate from the palace, and I suspect that for a while no one from Buck Keep knew where we were or if we lived. She tended us herself with the aid of an old manservant. I awoke some two days after the wedding. Four of the most miserable days of my life were spent lying in bed, limbs a-twitch, but not at my command. I dozed often, in a deadened way that was not pleasant, and either dreamed vividly of Verity, or sensed him trying to skill to me. The skilled dreams conveyed no sense to me other than that he was concerned for me. I grasped only isolated bits of knowledge from them, such as the color of the curtains in the room he skilled from, or the feel of a ring on his finger that he absently twisted as he tried to reach me. Some more violent jerk of my muscles would shake me from my dreams, and my spasming would torment me until, exhausted, I dozed again. My periods of alertness were as bad for Burrich lay on a pallet in the same room, breathing hoarsely, but doing little more than that. His features were swollen and discoloured, such that he was barely recognisable. From the beginning, Chong Kui gave me little hope for him, either that he would live, or that he would be himself if he did survive. But Burrich had cheated death before. The swelling gradually subsided, the purpling faded, and when he did awaken— he proceeded to recover himself swiftly. He had no memories of anything that occurred after he took me from the stable. I told him only what he needed to know. It was more than it was safe for him to know, but I owed it to him. He was up and about before I was, though at first he had times of dizziness and headaches. But before long, Burrich was getting to know the Jampe stables and exploring the town at his leisure. In the evenings he would return, and we had many long, quiet conversations. We both avoided topics where we knew we would disagree, and there were areas such as Chade's teachings where I could not be open with him. Mostly, though, we talked about dogs he had known, and horses he'd trained, and sometimes he spoke, a little, of his early days with chivalry. One evening I told him about Molly. He was quiet for a time, and then told me that he'd heard the owner of the bee-bomb chandlery had died in debt, and that his daughter, who had expected to inherit it, had gone to live with relatives in a village instead. He did not remember what village, but knew someone who would know. He did not mock me, but told me seriously that I should know my own mind before I saw her again. August, never skilled again, he was carried from the dais that day, but as soon as he recovered from his faint, he demanded to see Regal immediately. 
I trust he delivered Verity's message. For while Regal did not come to visit either Burrich or me during our convalescence, Ketrickin did, and she mentioned that Regal was most concerned that we recover quickly and completely from our accidents, for as he had promised her, he had forgiven me completely. She told me how Burrich had slipped and struck his head trying to pull me from the pool when I went into a seizure. I do not know who concocted that tale. Jonqui herself, perhaps. I doubt if even Chade could have come up with a better one, but Verity's message was the end of August's leadership of the Coterie, and all skilling, as far as I know. I do not know if he was too afraid after that day, or if the talent was blasted out of him by that force. He left the court and went to Withywoods, where chivalry and patience had once ruled. I believe he became wise. Following her wedding, Ketrickin joined with all of Jampe in a month of mourning for her brother. From my sickbed, I was aware of it mostly as chimes, chantings, and great burnings of incense. All Rurisk's possessions were given away. To me, Eod himself came, and brought a simple silver ring his son had worn, and the head of the arrow that had pierced his chest. He did not say much to me, except to tell me what the objects were, and that I should cherish these reminders of an exceptional man. He left me to wonder why these items had been selected for me. At the end of a month, Ketrickin set her mourning aside. She came to bid Burrich and me a swift recovery, and to bid us farewell until she saw us at Buck Keep. The brief moment of skilling from Verity had eliminated all her reservations about him. She spoke of her husband with a quiet pride, and went willingly to Buck Keep, knowing herself given to an honourable man. It was not for me to ride alongside her at the head of that homeward procession, or to enter Buck Keep, preceded by horns and tumblers and children ringing bells. That was Regal's place, and he put a gracious face on it. Regal appeared to take Verity's warning to heart. I do not think Verity ever completely forgave him but he dismissed Regal's plottings as if they were nasty boyish tricks, and I think that cowed Regal more than any public reprimand could have. The poisoning was eventually blamed on Raud and Severins by those who knew of it. Severins had, after all, obtained the poison, and Raud had delivered the gift of apple wine. Ketrickin pretended to be convinced that it was a misplaced ambition by servants on behalf of an unknowing master and Rurisk's death was never openly spoken of as a poisoning, nor did I become known as an assassin. Whatever was in Regal's heart, his outward demeanour was that of a younger prince graciously escorting his brother's bride home. I had a long convalescence. Chongqui treated me with herbs she said would rebuild what had been damaged. I should have tried to learn her herbs and techniques, but my mind could not seem to hold things any better than my hands could. I actually remember little of that time. My recovery from the poisoning was frustratingly slow. Chongqui sought to make it less tedious by arranging time for me in the great library. But my eyes wearied quickly, and seemed as prone to trembling disorders as my hands. I spent most days lying in my bed, thinking. For a time... I wondered if I wanted to return to Buckkeep, 
I wondered if I could still be Shrewd's assassin. I knew if I returned, I would have to sit down table from Regal and look up to see him at my king's left hand. I would have to treat him as if he had never tried to kill me, nor used me in the poisoning of a man I had admired. I spoke of it frankly one evening to Burridge. He sat and listened quietly. Then he said, I cannot imagine it will be easier for Ketrikin than it would be for you, nor for me, to look at a man who has tried to kill me twice and call him my prince. You must decide. I should hate to have him think he had frightened us away. But if you decide we are going elsewhere, then we shall. I think I finally guessed then what the earring signified. Winter was no longer a threat, but a reality, when we left the mountains. Burritch, Hans, and I returned much later to Buckkeep than the others, for we took our time on the journey. I tired easily, and my strength was still very unpredictable. I would crumble at odd moments, falling from the saddle like a sack of grain. Then they would stop to help me remount, and I would force myself to go on. Many nights I awoke shaking, without even the strength to call out. These lapses were slow to pass. Worst, I think, were the nights when I could not waken, but dreamed only of endlessly drowning. From one such dream I awoke to Verity standing over me. You're enough to wake the dead, he told me genially. We must find a master for you to teach you some control, if nothing else. Ketrikin finds it a bit peculiar that I dream so often of drowning. I suppose I should be grateful you slept well on my wedding night, at least. Verity? I said groggily. Go back to sleep, he told me. Galen is dead, and I've put Regal on a shorter leash. You've nothing to fear. Go to sleep. And stop dreaming so loud. Verity, wait! But my act of groping after him broke the tenuous skill contact, and I had no choice but to do as he advised. We travelled on through increasingly unpleasant weather. We all looked forward to getting home long before we arrived there. Burridge had, I believe, overlooked Hans's abilities until that trip. Hans had a quiet competence that inspired trust in horses as well as dogs. Eventually, he easily replaced both Cobb and me in the Buckkeep stables, and the friendship that grew between Burritch and him caused me to be more aware of my aloneness than I care to admit. Galen's death was considered a tragic thing at Buckkeep Court. Those who had known him least spoke most kindly about him. Obviously the man had overstrained himself for his heart to fail him so young. There was some talk of naming a warship after him, as if he were a fallen hero. But Verity never recognized the idea, and it never came to pass. His body was sent back to Pharaoh for burial, with all honors. If Shrewd suspected anything of what had gone on between Verity and Galen, he kept it well hidden. Neither he nor even Chade ever mentioned it to me. The loss of our skillmaster with not even an apprentice to replace him, was no trivial thing, especially with the red ships on our horizons. That was what was openly discussed, 
but Verity flatly refused to consider Serene or any of the others Galen had trained. I never found out if Shrewd had given me over to Regal. I never asked him, nor even mentioned my suspicions to Chade. I suppose I didn't want to know. I tried not to let it affect my loyalties, but in my heart when I said, My king, I meant Verity. The timbers Rurisk had promised came to Buckkeep. They had to be dragged overland to the Vin River before they could be rafted down to Tur Lake, and thence down to Buck River to Buckkeep. They arrived by midwinter and were all Rurisk had said they would be. The first completed warship was named after him. I think he would have understood that, but not quite approved of it. King Shrewd's plan had succeeded. It had been many years since Buck Keep had had a queen of any kind, and Ketrickin's arrival stirred interest in court life. The tragic death of her brother on her wedding eve, and the brave way she had continued, despite it, captured the imagination of the people. Her unmistakable admiration for her new husband made Verity a romantic hero even to his own folk. They were a striking couple, with her youth and pale beauty setting off Verity's quiet strength. Shrewd displayed them at balls that attracted every minor noble from every duchy, and Ketrickin spoke with intense eloquence of the need for all to band together to defeat the Red Ship Raiders. So Shrewd raised his monies, and even in the storms of winter, the fortifications of the six duchies began. More towers were constructed, and folk volunteered to man them. Shipwrights vied for the honor of working on the warships, and Buckkeep Town was swollen with volunteers to man the ships. For a brief time that winter, folk believed in the legends they created, and it seemed the red ships could be defeated by sheer will alone. I mistrusted that mood, but watched as Shrewd promoted it, and wondered how he would sustain it when the realities of the forgings began again. Of one other I must speak, one dragged into that conflict and intrigue only by his loyalty to me. To the end of my days I will bear the scars he gave me, his worn teeth, sank deeply into my hand several times before he managed to drag me from that pool. How he did it, I will never know. But his head still rested on my chest when they found us. His mortal bonds to this world had broken. Nosy was dead. I believe he gave his life freely, recalling that we had been good to one another, when we were puppies. Men cannot grieve as dogs do, but we grieve for many years. Epilogue You are wearied, my boy says. He is standing at my elbow, and I do not know how long he has been there. He reaches forward slowly to lift the pen from my lax grip. Wearily, I regard the faltering trail of ink it has tracked down my page. I have seen that shape before, I think. But it was not ink then, a trickle of drying blood on the deck of a red ship, and mine the hand that spilled it. 
or was it a tendril of smoke rising black against a blue sky as I rode too late to warn a village of a red ship raid? Or poison swirling and unfurling yellowly in a simple glass of water, poison I had handed someone, smiling all the while? The artless curl of a strand of woman's hair left upon my pillow? or the trail of a man's heels left in the sand as we dragged the bodies from the smouldering tower at Seal Bay. The track of a tear down a mother's cheek as she clutched her forged infant to her, despite his angry cries. Like red ships, the memories come without warning, without mercy. You should rest the boy says again, and I realize I am sitting, staring at a line of ink on a page. It makes no sense. Here is another sheet spoiled, another effort to set aside. Put them away, I tell him, and do not object as he gathers all the sheets and stacks them haphazardly together. Herbery and history, maps and musings, all are hodgepodge in his hands, as they are in my mind. I can no longer recall what it was I set out to do. The pain is back, and it would be so easy to quiet it. But that way lies madness, as has been proven so many times before me. So instead, I send the boy to find two leaves of carimi and ginger root and peppermint to make a tea for me. I wonder if one day I will ask him to fetch three leaves of that Chiordan herb. Somewhere, a friend says softly, No. This concludes Assassin's Apprentice. Please visit our website, www.tantor.com, for more information on our growing library of unabridged audiobooks, and to take advantage of special offers, or call toll-free 877-7-TANTOR to request a catalogue.